A word to the wise, we are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes, as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. That point is the end of Iron Gold, the fourth installment of the Red Rising series by Pierce Brown. I love this book. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. And today we're not alone. We have a, an actual full book club. We've got a little roundtable discussion going. <laughs> it's not just me and Crossland screaming into the void alone anymore. <laughs> It's true. It's true. Uh, today, we are going to be doing a wrap-up episode on Iron Gold. We've got some excellent guests joining us to talk about this absolutely phenomenal book. We've got the trio of hosts of Hail Reaper, Mather, Philip, and Jeremy. Say hello, folks. What's going on? Hello. <laughs> that was awkward. I was going to go, and I didn't want to step on anybody, but uh, hello, this is Mathar. Hi. Hi. How's it going? It's going great over here. <laughs> So just like, just see ourselves out. Is that how it goes? Yeah, yeah. I mean, feel feel free to introduce yourselves. Some yeah. some interests, whatever, uh, whatever, whatever you like. Math Maybe how up. you got into Red Rising in the first place. Yeah, this Maybe was a great. Place to start. Uh, I hope we could do it again sometime. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I've already ruined it. Uh, what's up, Cross? What's up, PJ? Happy to be here. And uh, should, should I? Uh, my name is Mathar. I'm a producer and a part time host for Hail Reaper podcast all about the red rising unit fancy that it's all about the the world of red rising and uh philip jeremy and i uh we we focus on like sound design and like immersive sort of experiences within that world much much shorter than the lengthy conversations you guys get into here um although get getting ready for those we we get deep into it so (laughs) i'm actually very very excited to be here because i uh, just finished this book recently, and I have so much to say about it. So lots of feelings. Uh, yeah, I'm thrilled. I, I I do most of the scoring and sound design for that show, but I'll turn it over to my my co-host now. All right, I'm Jeremy, and I like puppies and long walks on the beach. I like uh, those marshmallows <laughs> that come in cereal, and um, and I found Red Rising actually through Philip. I know there's a question, so I don't want to go too far into that. Uh, I saw the outline, but uh, I am co-host, I'm the business side of the mullet, and I also do uh, <laughs> junior editing duties over here at Hale Reaper. So, that's me. My name is Philip. I am. I, I'm, I work on Hale Reaper, I co-host with these guys, and I, but the, the joke is, or it's not like a joke, I, I'm being completely sincere, I don't refer to any of us as hosts. Like, mostly it's, it's Jeremy's my good friend, and Mathar is either my good friend or my regular friend, and soon to be something else. <laughs> so, because uh, these are my, these are my two closest. And I'm, I don't do anything for Hail Reaper as much as I just sit here and I, I'm, and talk about it and Red Rising. And then I am the glue guy. You know, however, like, you know, like the, the person that's the sticky glue that kind of holds, uh, all three of us together at times, but then I'm also very mentally fragile. So then they become the glue guys, and then we all kind of glue together. That's my job. 
I just like uh, <laughs> I, this is news to me that uh, Philip doesn't do anything. So I just like Jeremy as like the business side of the mullet to make a note of that so that we can dock his shares. That would be great because I didn't know that he wasn't doing anything. I thought he's I thought he's been working this whole time. So that'd be great. Mathar is the party side of the mullet, and Philip is just the bald spot in the middle. Then yeah, <laughs> no, I'm not on the mullet. I'm just like I'm I'm like I'm the guy in the chair next to the guy in the mullet at the barber shop. Well, no, I mean, like a lot of a lot of really good mullets work well with like sideburns. So that's how I think okay. of Jeremy. As, okay. Like that's what what's going on in this midsection here on the side. Can stare go, but holds it all it's together. It's accentuating, right? Like draws the eye up to the mullet. So <laughs> there you go, sideburns. Fantastic. Well, that's that's awesome. We've we've so much to talk about today. But before we do that, we generally like to start by talking about what we're drinking. Uh, we'll just kind of go in the order of the document. But I'm going to let PJ start, actually. So, PJ, what are you drinking? All right. So, for a cocktail, I created something called Rim Juice. It sounds gross, um, but it actually tastes really good. It's equal parts Midori, Cointreau, and lemon juice, all shaken together and then uh, garnished with a cocktail cherry. It looks like this bright, acid green Mountain Dew-looking drink. Mm. Um, Traditionally, Crossland and I do a shot before we start recording. So we decided to do that today also. It got a little weird for me. Crossland tasked me with doing something on the theme of Zolodone. So I'm like, all right. Oh, shit. Induces (laughs) apathy. (laughs) It probably isn't that great for you. Wait, I take Um, it back. I do want want in on this. Hold on. (laughs) Excuse me while I go downstairs and grab a Zolodone real quick, because this is painful. (laughs) So also, as... You guys will see. I don't have a clean shot glass. Wow! So I have a quarter cup right now. Oh and it's filled with... holding up to the camera. It's holding up a uh, measuring cup, <laughs> which I presume is t- precisely two ounces. I don't know. It, it's a quarter cup. I don't know. Um, <laughs> so good. He showed it to me right beforehand, and I could barely stop laughing. I was like, is this part ever. of the theme, the riff on Zolodone? You're like, oh, <laughs> yeah. What would what would somebody in the streets of Lost City be uh, using as a shooter? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. So it is uh, a little bit of simple syrup. I squeezed this half a lime, like just a little bit in there, and then I filled the rest with absinthe. <laughs> All right. That'll do it. That'll so, do it. It's going to be terrible. I have this extra <laughs> half a lime just to kind of suck on afterwards, but cheers on the shot. Cheers. Cheers to the show. Very <laughs> excited to have you guys, of course. Cheers. <laughs> nope. Yeah, that that didn't look good at all. Oh. Oh no. <laughs> um, I, do you feel numb yet? <laughs> I wish I did. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I did. What it if if I had more sugar in there, I think it could be pretty good. But mm. it is just straight up absinthe. <laughs> it's just absinthe. So that's what I've got. Um, who's who's next in the order? Who wants to tackle the next one? Mather. Let's go, Mather. All right. Mather. So today I'm drinking. I didn't really make this up, but it's kind of a play on a drink called the El Presidente. About one and a half uh, ounces of rum. Uh, I think the El Presidente is typically like a golden run rum. Uh, but I'm using a Puerto Rican rum and a dry vermouth instead of uh, white or Bianco. And uh, you typically want to go with like a triple sec 
and then like an orange twist, but I don't have any orange, so I used orange bitters instead. And yeah, yeah, it's delicious. I built it in the glass, and uh, it is quite the aperitif. One of my favorite things about this cocktail right now is that I'm drinking it on a coaster that I got from Disneyland. It's got a little perfect, uh, nice walk on it. That's dope. There you (laughs) go. They have alcohol at Disneyland now. That's (laughs) something it always needed. It did. (laughs) I didn't know it needed it, but then I discovered it. And uh, boy, let me tell you, there's a pairing. There was always alcohol in like some of the other parks, right? But now, yeah, there's always been alcohol near Disneyland. Never just quite in it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Cool. Good deal. Awesome. Jeremy, you're up. What are you drinking? So I'm going to actually, I think Philip will want me to speak for the two of us. No, I can do mine. You can. Do you yeah. know what I? Do you know? What you, no, I have no clue. You have no I'm clue just going to make it up. Yeah. Okay. Cool. You're going to make that up. Great. Okay. No. No. So, let's start. No. 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 <laughs> hang on. Let's start with yeah, Philip. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's, okay, let's start with Philip. I got that. this. I got this. Okay. So I have this glass <laughs> that has clear alcohol inside of it with ice and a lemon, and it tastes good. As you can tell, I'm a huge drinker, and I love alcohol. Alcohol is my life, and I feel. It's the way I connect with humanity. And I can't with this frat boy right now. He's a party boy in this podcast. Look yeah, at him. I know. I'm a bro. You are the sideburns. Uh, um, I think, well, I know it's a gin and tonic. Is that right? It is a gin and okay, tonic. Okay, cool. Yes, I got it. Yes. I got it. Um, no, like, so my bartender is exclusively Jeremy. And that's it. The only time I ever consume alcohol at all is at this, at, in our studio. And so, which I do, like, last time uh, Mathar was in town, we had... Uh, we had Moscow mules. That was really mm-hmm. fun too. I love, I love Moscow mules, but I don't, I don't, I don't really know much. I just know what I like and it tastes good. And I'm typically when I go You'd to you never a know that by your description. I know exactly. But I, um, I just like, but when I go to a restaurant, sometimes I get stuff, but I like the, I don't know. I like stuff with like watermelon or mint or like basil, stuff like that. Uh, that's like the cocktails. That's fair. There you go. Mm-hmm. So, so for, for Philip. Yeah, I, I did a, a pretty basic G&T. Uh, he did pull the carpet from under me at the last minute and uh, ditched out of sharing a drink with me. So I didn't have limes on hand. I, I have lime juice uh, in the wet bar. So uh, it's it's basically just a, a two-to-one ratio of tonic water to gin um, and then a tablespoon of lime juice. And because I only had lemons, because of what I'll introduce as my drink, uh, I just put a lemon wedge on there for uh, for <laughs> good looks. It's yeah, all exactly. about aesthetics. <laughs> uh, that's that's Philip's drink there. Uh, he's an aficionado, so I, I know he was able to properly relay exactly what he's drinking. But on my side, I, I decided to um, kind of lean into the nerdiness of uh, what we're doing here, and I wanted to go uh, James Bond themed. So with Casino Royale, I went with a Vesper Martini for myself. And uh, as what's his name? What's the author of? Uh, of the James Bond series. Anybody? Anybody? Red Rising? Ian Fleming? Ian Fleming. What, what were those other answers? I said J.R.R. So, Tolkien. So, J.R.R. <laughs> Tolkien? As, uh, I heard Tolkien. As, as, lore, as lore has it, Fleming actually invented this recipe when he was writing uh, Casino Royale, which was the first James Bond book. So it's uh, three ounces of Gordon's gin, uh, one ounce of vodka. In, in this case, I'm using Kettle One. It's a, uh, the recipe itself calls for a quina lile, which is um, a quinine or quinine uh, kind of based aperitif wine. 
uh, that they don't actually make anymore. A lot of people will sub out uh, Lille Blanc, but it, it's not uh, the quinine. Mm -hmm. So I actually use uh, Cokie Americano, and I'm using uh, half an ounce of that. And then, of course, it's James Bond, so it's shaken, not stirred. And then I strain that uh, to get the ice shards out, and then I finish it off with a nice uh, wedge of lemon. So there you go. That's my Vesper Martini. Fun fact that kind of connects the tissue of all of the jokes that happened at the same time. Uh, Christopher Lee is the stepbrother of Ian Fleming, who the guy who played Saruman. Mm -hmm. And so he is also the inspiration for James Bond. And that is his favorite cocktail, or was his favorite cocktail. Wow. But wow. all of that just kind of bleeds together very nicely with what you said. That's, so. that's a deep pool. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a better person for that. Uh, question for PJ. <laughs> yes. So I've always, every time I put on your podcast, I listen and you guys do talk about drinks. And it seems like you're genuinely really into this experience of describing your drink and, and talking about it. And obviously, apparently taking shots out of measuring cups as well. But... Are you, were you ever a bartender? Cause you sound like you are a bar, you sound uh, like a former so bartender. Not an actual bartender. I was a beer tender for a long time. So uh, I, I worked at breweries, um, all over the place. Um, and then I worked as a brewer at a couple different breweries. So I, I know the beer side really well and that yeah. just kind of lends itself to talking about cocktails and getting tasting notes and really kind of refining a palate as far as tasting goes. That's it. That's that unlocks. It's also so nerdy. It's such a nerdy mm -hmm, thing to be into. I've got a couple books up there. I've got, um, uh, they're hard to see, but behind my little tiki mugs back there, I've got um, one from Smuggler's Cove and one from Death & Co. in New York. And uh, gosh, when I'm like, re I was like reading through them trying to like decide, well, what am I going to do on the podcast? Huh. It's so nerdy. Everything is nerdy it's when so you get that into though. it. <laughs> it's like, it's, so much it's fun, hard though. for me not to nerd out on anything that I get into, right? No matter how mm -hmm. cool I'm doing air quotes. Cool it is. <laughs> I somehow make it nerdy. It, it's true, especially when you start to dive into it and you start to actually like understand. Yeah. I, I really didn't know that much about cocktail construction until we started doing this podcast. PJ was like, we should we should make that as a part of the show. And I was like, totally. We, we like drinking beer. Let's talk about that. And he's like, Very we should do drinks too. And I'm like, hmm, interesting. Don't know how to do that. <laughs> Learning this has been insane because now I can just mix stuff and I, I, ha I come out with something on the other side that most of the time tastes good. Sometimes it's awful, but, you know, you learn, like, weird fundamentals. That's how great things are born. Actually, uh, so uh, I don't know if you know about Death & Co., but it is actually um, one of the, like, rated one of the best cocktail bars in New York. And Dave Kaplan, the guy who started it and wrote that book, did started the bar, like, out of fraternity. Because, like, <laughs> no one there knew how to make anything out of anything. <laughs> and he was kind of into, like, some of these, he got a book of, like, classic cocktails. And was like, you know what? I'm really trying to like impress these people and I want to like have like kind of a, a thing about me. And so I'm just going to start making cocktails. I'm going to be the guy who makes cocktails at these like frat parties. <laughs> and so I forget the school he went to, but he was like <laughs> making cocktails for like all the people coming in and out of there. And then they just like started to fall in love. It started to become a thing and he got better and better and better. And yeah, now he's running one of the best cocktail bars like in New York and he's known uh, across the entire country for like his contributions to the industry. And yeah, literally started out of just like, oh, you know, nobody else is doing this. I'll just do it. That's so cool. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Necessity right. It's the mother of invention. Totally. I, th I totally. think you talking about both of those cocktail books is what's going to push me over the edge to actually order them because I've heard about <laughs> them, but I've never met anybody that owns them and high remarks from them. I'll get it. 
So oh, yeah. I'm excited to to order those. It'll make you really sad about how small your bar is. <laughs> That's all I'll say. It'll make you very sad that you don't have the money to stock everything in the book because that's how I felt. I'm like, you know what? One cocktail at a time, right? <laughs> Let's yeah. see, how I mean, many cocktails does this like $80 bottle of like, liqueur actually make? Okay, all right, I'm good. Exactly. This, uh, this whole, you can see my shelf here of my, mm-hmm. my oh, bottles. That's like two or three years of like slowly sure. building things up. So, <laughs> and it's accelerated a lot from, from starting this podcast. I'm like, all right, I want to do this cocktail. Well, I've got to go get like two additional bottles now. Dang. Uh, okay. Is maybe that the absence of squid ink? Is that, I, I can see, or is that uh, like a chartreuse? What is that up there on the, uh, the, the one right, right here? Yeah. That is Midori. <laughs> I picked that up today uh, uh, for, for <laughs> this <perfect>. cocktail. <laughs> Right. Uh, yeah, that's that's a uh, melon liqueur. It's yes. really really good. Oh, wow. Yeah. Com- commonly used in sours. Yeah. Yep. So I'm excited Fantastic. to do some well, more PJ, experimenting you, with that. You sound like a professional to me. So you're you're my professional. I'm the most professional you'll ever meet. <laughs> Indeed. Thank you for giving me an excuse. Thank you both for giving us an excuse to drink professionally. Cheers yes. to that. Thank you exactly. very much. That's, so, that's the entire namesake of the show. Um, do you guys usually drink on the show at all or not? So just just to frame this is maybe more interesting. PJ actually has had to refrain to listening for your to your podcast for a while mm-hmm. and partially because of avoiding spoilers and things like that. Right. The first two seasons are definitely fine. They're a OK. OK. And I, I just kind of have approved those recently for PJ to go and listen to <laughs> yeah. but like he can't go and listen to Howler Pod because there are spoilers through Dark Age. Mm-hmm. Right. And so he hasn't been able to ingest anyone else's media. So this is his first time meeting you, hearing your voices, etc., yep. which is a very interesting experience compared to me i've listened to everything and, and whatnot so very very different on that side of things but yeah i've been yeah. i've been holding back and it's been tough. sequestered i haven't been like participating in any of the red rising reddit posts like i've been intentionally holding back on everything because i hate i hate being spoiled on things i hate it I too do. pj and we're in the yeah. same boat because we we have a discord and I try to be actively engaged in that community and I have to be so trepidatious because I just started dark age. So I'm like, and already I know people have spoiled shit for me and I'm just like, it, it is like, it infuriates me because it's like, we have clear (laughs) rules saying, you know, this is where you can spoil stuff. And you Mm -hmm. know what? People try their best, but it's impossible not to like bring things Mm -hmm. up. And even when you like, even like, you know how they say like a lie of omission is still a lie. It's like, even when you're like trying to (laughs) omit the spoiler, you're still letting me know about something like the fact that a character lived long enough to be in a certain book or something like that. Right. And so Mm -hmm. it sucks. That is the, that's the one spoiler I got through the entire Red Rising series that I yeah that's it's what caused me to like I was on the Red Rising Reddit for a day right and I learned that Lysander was still alive I'm like all right fuck it I'm yeah, I'm off <laughs> I'm <laughs> yeah that was that was my threshold of like this is too much spoiler well, that'll do it you know I um we just interviewed uh, Howler one on our podcast and I had to sit out of most of that interview because. He was just oh, talking no. about Iron Gold and Dark Age just like freely, openly. And what are you going to do? Just tell like Pierce, can you not like you're not going to ask Pierce Brown to <laughs> stop spoiling his own books. Just, just let the man you, talk, you, right? I had to just mm-hmm. take my headphones out and take a step back. 
if you talk to him, like if you refer to him as what we refer to him as a, on our show, I think he'd be okay with it, which is Piercy Boy. Piercy Boy. Say, Piercy Boy, come on. Like, <laughs> keep it chill. Don't spoil. Philip, what were you going to say? I have a question for you, Cross, because we haven't talked about this. So, did you read the books in real time? Or are you, did you, or were you like at a certain point, were you in real time with them? Because I read them all through the course of like, late 2016 early 2017 and so i read iron gold and dark age in real time but what because i know and i know that jeremy had read them all five all at once like in one like big two-month blow mathar is where about where pj is maybe like just a distant a, a clip ahead but where were you at now I, I don't know so i was at pretty much the same point you were uh so i i read right before i finished morningstar and then i had no idea that there was going to be a sequel series same. so i didn't even know that iron gold came out and then for a month i had no clue for a full month so i actually didn't even know that iron gold was out until dark age was out and then oh, i wow. burned through iron gold in like a week and then i waited a month and then i picked up dark age and i split that into two chunks because couldn't handle it <laughs> and that's that's it uh but yeah that was that was pretty much my comparison story but yeah pretty similar i was curious just because i know the part the the focal point of the podcast is to you know leave pj in the dark <laughs> continually over and over again i don't you have you have the patience of a god <laughs> Poor fella. i i don't understand i know you've been told this i know i've heard you've been lauded for your ability to be left on cliffhangers but man, dude, you're you're a champion. That is, I I could not do this. I'm not. I don't have the patience or the internal like, uh, you know, like discipline to sit around and go like, well, I could just read this like right now. Like I could. It's at my fingertips, and I want to know. And I'm sure you <laughs> care about the story or care about what happens to certain characters or just or just general curiosity. So, uh, yeah, hats off because you guys, oh my the God. discipline required for this is like insane. I just, I don't think I can. I don't think I can do I'm, this. I'm just realizing, like, as Philip's talking, I'm like, what does he mean? And I'm like, oh, they don't read the book and then make a season talking about it. PJ's reading it, like, episode <laughs> mm-hmm. to episode. Yeah. Holy shit. That's just occurring to me. <laughs> yeah. How? So, <laughs> How are you doing to, that? To give, to give some perspective to some, like, real-time shit that's happening right now, we finished the book and recorded last week or two weeks ago? Last Two week? weeks ago. Two weeks ago, um, Two weeks ago, we recorded our final episode going over the final chapter of or final chapters of Iron Gold. I haven't read Dark Age yet, and we record the first episode <laughs> on Thursday, so I have two days. Yes, now, two days. But I've, many- I've just been waiting. I've been r- waiting to pick up Dark Age. Yeah, how many chapters do you do at a time? Yeah, how many you um, knock out? <laughs> So it depends. I, I vary it based on the cliffhanger and the, the plot right. point. We tend to stick in the 40 to 60 page mark, which typically is about six chapters, six to seven chapters. Um, sometimes a little bit more, depending on if I need to get to a certain point in the story. Most of Dark Age is about 50 pages right. for reasons. So I'm not saying any more than that. Man, Dark Age is a long book. Yeah. So I, I wanted to come into this talk untainted about like what's going forward yeah so i decided to make sure i could read all of that i had a similar (laughs) thought and couldn't resist so that that right there demonstrates my lack of willpower i was like you know cool i'll go into this conversation i'll be literally right where pj is and then Mm -hmm. uh i i'm already like on chapter seven or eight of like in the last two days i couldn't resist (laughs) i was like i have to know what's going on i have to it's definitely tough i i curse crossland out on air all the time for this 
but I curse him out off air way more. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> he probably deserves it. It's a real. It really tries yeah. our friendship, but yeah. Uh, just as a note much. before we jump into the commentary, I should just say my drink real quick. I am drinking Lyrius Tears, two ounces oh of gin, uh, three quarter ounce smoked honey, which is a sugar replacement, elderflower tonic, and grapefruit bitters, all stirred up. Call it blue shoes. It's, uh, it's great. <laughs> blue shoes. Blue shoes. That's the name of the drink. Sounds nice. <laughs> Lyrius hey, Tears is good though too. Hey, before Blue we shoes. go on though, that's actually better. I uh, I want to address PJ yeah. because he is like waiting there super patiently and never got his question answered. Um, but what was P- the question? PJ, that's I've got true. you. So, oh, which is what? PJ I, asked if we drink on the show. We do. So yeah, the the answer oh, is yeah, yes. I did. I did ask that. <laughs> that was. <laughs> you don't even remember. That's why you're being so patient. You forgot. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, maybe it's not that P- PJ's really patient. They just really forgetful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yep. So typically, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll mix something for filling myself uh, a gin and tonic, an old fashioned, something of that nature, and uh, it helps us loosen up. I, we we kind of have like two different criteria for what we put out, and one is kind of strictly event based, which is tends to be a little bit more serious. It's it's it hovers around the books themselves, character discussions, things like that. And then I guess like what you might consider to be off season or non-event based uh, kind of material in which we are a little more about that party in the back mullet. So uh, I think Matthew, I think you do too, but we, we certainly bring out the drinks for, uh, for those occasions. I, I just want to do it all the time now. Yes. Yeah. Like, it depends like it. on if need use brain good. So <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Here you go. I don't Dude, like old fashioned. So we I'll say we that. try to, <laughs> I'm not. Right. I, I like. I like clear. Is alcohol. it too okay. soon in the podcast to start telling Philip that he's wrong? Like, wait. No, like, should we never wait until we get into the yeah. discussion? Yeah. <laughs> no. Never. Never yeah. too soon. Exactly. Jokes. I joke. I kid. No, it's fine. Um, it's fine. Usually, we try to keep it pretty right on like the level of tippiness for like just before drunkenness. But last week, I got fucking hammered. <laughs> <laughs> just, just for context, because I highly doubt you guys listened to it, but we recorded for almost four hours. Yeah. And it was it was the longest that we've ever recorded. That's a champion's recording session. Is that session. out already? Yeah, it's only two hours and 15 minutes, though. But I'm releasing an extra cut that includes all of PJ's drunk ramblings. Was it like, which is hilarious. like throw up into, throwing <laughs> up on the toilet? Kind of like bathroom trips in the background or what? No, just no. I'm the only one who's done that. Yeah. But that was a completely oh, did different that too. episode. The Congrats. only podcast or like video that I've ever like consumed that that is is that long is like Critical Role. Mm. But like, I, I want to try it. I like want to try. I want to be on this journey with PJ. And yeah. uh, now that I can, <laughs> I want to kind of like do a little sampling. So maybe I can follow. Like, if I can stay ahead of you on Dark Age, like I can follow the podcast along. There you go give give it a go that's that's the intent of course and it's also for so that people can relive the moment yeah. and like relive it through new eyes and kind of get the experience and then get some context that's basically all i do and i drag pj along in a leash that's that's my role is in this well i mean yeah. you're a good I, friend you're a good friend that's what good <laughs> friends do i try i try i've mentioned this before and i had a completely different um understanding of what we were getting into than crossing did but <laughs> my assumption <laughs> My my entire assumption when we started this podcast was we're going to attract people kind of like me that don't read much but want to, and this can kind of be a good like motivation to get into reading. Mm-hmm. I didn't expect people who had already read the content to be like the primary listenership, 
so that's that's been kind of a strange fun uh realization for me that like my my ramblings are like what's entertaining for all of them like seeing it from new eyes <laughs> well it's um, like they're living vicariously so. right and and yeah. i've heard you say that before i'm deeply deeply into video games that like are open world long i like long like experiential plays right immersive stuff and i don't get that into like twitch for stuff like overwatch or like competitive play or stuff that's just like a- animal crossing like i kind of like that stuff a little bit the stuff I really love is seeing people play through a game for the first time, especially a game that I fell in love with. Cause it's just like, there's just, I can never go back and play this game for the first time, but seeing somebody else play like uh Ocarina of time for the first time is like, it just scratches an itch that you can't, I don't know. You can't quite compartmentalize that in any other way. It's just, it's the only way you can actually go back to where you were in some ways. So mm-hmm. I think it makes sense that people are yeah. really enjoying your experience. Cause you know, you're not an idiot. So <laughs> I think there's at least, I think, I think there's like, you know, it, it might be one thing, like if they were, <laughs> if they were only coming back and for like, you know, the head scratching gorilla sort of opinions, then maybe they're in it for something else. But I think, you know, from what I've heard of the show, what I've experienced of the show, it's uh I think it's really smart. I just, I have to splash a little bit of praise on you guys. I think like in a way I'm a little jealous of the idea to say like, well, you know, let's let people live vicariously through someone who's like, who wants to read more, you know, because then you'll have both sides of that audience tuning in and it's, it's brilliant. I love it. Hey, Kudos. so well, I've thanks. Got, I've got a question for cross. Um, I finished my drink. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Fire away, Jeremy. Yeah, before we jump too far into it, I, I just want to make sure everybody knows that I am a proud card-carrying member of the Words and Whiskey Patreon, and anybody listening, you got to jump in you this are. thing. Both, two are. Two it's, out of three. There we go. It's awesome. Uh, you definitely need to get in on that. And one thing I have to ask, though, is uh, when, you know, once uh, PJ is out of quarantine and he gets to take his mask off and, and rejoin society and all that kind of stuff, will he understand what's been said in the no PJs allowed uh, chat room? And will he continue to do the show or is he going to quit? <laughs> <laughs> I've heard about this. The no PJs allowed zone. It's so funny because the, the Discord probably looks moderately quiet to pj and like occasional spurts of conversation inside of our books which is really titled the hack stephen king channel and uh like a games and music channel and like those those go off but the no pj zone is live it's a live wire all the time so and pj has no clue yeah. <laughs> I, I have access to the channel but i have it muted intentionally and i haven't looked into it i haven't broken that rule you're a good boy i was the first person to post in the channel i think i made the channel but i think you I, pinned it yeah yeah i i did not i have not gone into that and I think it was yesterday or a couple of days ago, I talked to Crossland. I'm like, hey, does anybody actually use that channel? Like, should we get rid of it? He's like, no, it's fucking like the it's most, <laughs> most popular channel on the, on the Patreon. I'm like, all right, well, it's that's a very good. popular channel. <laughs> it, this might be premature, but you guys are one book away from the end of the Red Rising series. Have you already pegged your next your next read is so actually what we're doing this week is we're going to put it up to our patreon supporters we've had a number of people write in for different book series i've been keeping tally over time and we currently just with a recent comment have a tie 
between First Law and Mistborn Era 1. Nice. So there are also a number of people who want us to do Dark Tower. I want to hold off on Dark Tower for a bit because it's a much longer commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, but both of those would let us... They're, they're short enough trilogies where we could do the trilogy each and then we could go back to Red Rising Book 6 when it comes out, we'll say, summer of next year or what have you. Um, it would give us enough time to read an entire trilogy, talk it through, do the episodes like we'd want to, and then jump back to Book 6, wrap up Red Rising go into whatever's next Makes sense. so is there any reason pj couldn't read the next like book if you haven't read it or, or are these selections that you have already read actually these are mostly selections that i've already read the interesting thing that we've actually considered doing and that pj has the right to do pj has a podcast inside of our patreon called pj's symposium pj gets to demand whatever the hell he wants out of me and i have to do it for that month and so I've I've had to watch movies that I don't like. I've had to watch movies I haven't seen. Uh, we're That's both fun. watching a movie blind next month. We've talked about doing a book in kind of the same fashion. But yeah, there is there is kind of that idea of doing it in the yeah. reverse fashion. And I think at some point, if PJ were to read a book on his own, absolutely. That is a big can, if. Can, if um, that is a big if, Crosslands. Can, is it possible to just mute both of them real quick? Can we just mute <laughs> Philip and Jeremy? Because can I just come be on your podcast? Is that something? <laughs> I want to watch movies. I want to watch, dude. Philip said, "Sorry, he's muted, so he doesn't know that I'm talking shit." Mm-hmm. But um, <laughs> I'm muted right now. He he's muted. See, like he said, he was going to watch Mandalorian, and then he never did. Oh man, that that was actually a big burning point for a while now. <laughs> actually, in listening to the podcast, I'm like, I cannot believe Philip has not watched Mandalorian yet. Also, this is the longest non sequitur we've ever had on the podcast, and I adore it. Um, this is also it's not a non sequitur because yeah. we're talking about your. Po- well, you didn't know we were here to interview you, Cross. Come on, <laughs> look at the script, baby. I have a proposal. So I like this. I, you mentioned Dark Tower. A Dark Tower is something that I was actually looking at the other day. Yep. I was like, wow, it's ten books, and I was like, that's just like a big undertaking. But it looks really interesting. But it, what say you don't want to spend ten books of time worth on that? You know, that's a lot. That's a big commitment. What if you mm-hmm. watch the movie with Matthew McConaughey and Idris Elba in fifteen minute segments? And then PJ was was only able to watch those fifteen minute segments, and then you talked about that fifteen minutes on a podcast. I, I think it, well, it's like probably a two and a half hour movie. I think you could get some good. You do work, the same don't you, Philip? You do work. Yeah, I, Admit I, I, it. You I, do work. I work with ideas. That's my job. This is literally what Philip does on the podcast. You're seeing it in in action. Like this is literally no, uh, Philip is like the idea man. It's amazing. When that I say I don't do nothing, I feel like I don't do nothing, but my I, I bring ideas. So I would I would hella listen to that. By the way, <laughs> so, yeah, I literally I was just saying I, I totally I would really so, if you guys oh, did a fifth, you guys only watch fifteen minutes of the Dark Tower movie and then <laughs> talked about it, and you ha- and I'm, I want you to talk about it for at least sixty minutes per those fifteen minutes of actual film time, and then I I mean who wouldn't pick that up? What sponsorships would you not get from that? Tons. Yeah, that'd, be pretty, Tons. that'd be pretty lucrative. Yeah. Oh, man. So, Crossland, <laughs> this opens up some, some questions for me. First of all, is there any point <laughs> in the series, if we, if we end up doing The Dark Tower, is there any point in the series where I would be movie. safe to watch the movie? At the end? It, it goes through the entire series. <laughs> I can't answer that question, PJ. <laughs> I haven't watched the movie. I, Crossland has been trying right, to right. get me to read The Dark Tower since I met him in junior Since high? I was like 14, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. And I haven't. And I haven't watched the movie. So like this is set up perfectly. 
I know mm. nothing. Same. I know, I know nothing. nothing. I have no idea what all. you guys are even talking about. This is the first time I've heard of the Dark Tower. Interesting. Ooh. Yeah, I don't even. I, like, I don't even know what you guys are referring to. I know who Matthew McConaughey is. <laughs> and when you started talking about a movie version of your podcast, I was like, yeah, okay, I'm in. Like, I go watch a movie. Wait, hold on, like, hold on. I know Matthew McConaughey. I think this is actually going to end up being Words and Whiskey's first episode of the next book series. Dark Tower. What's all talk about Dark Tower for a while yeah. and cross one cool. for us primarily. The, the very quick elevator pitch is it's just like a mashup of Western plus King Arthur mm-hmm. plus traversing the worlds and going from a foreign world to Earth in different timelines. That's it. That's all that I'm going to pitch. But it's wild. It's insane. Written by Stephen King. Insane. Crazy oh, shit. Okay. No, no, no. That's I it. do know what you're talking about. And it, Dark Tower is that the thing in the they always make the jokes about like the man in the desert or something like that there's like the man in the man in black flood across the desert and the gunslinger fallout is the first line of the book so just yep. delete everything I just said just go a uh, Tim is yep. it Tim is the editor Andrew, Andrew Andrew Tim is the web guy Tim is the web guy Andrew delete everything mm-hmm. I just said make me sound smarter uh, I definitely know what Dark Tower is <laughs> yeah I totally know what you guys are all talking about and yes I think it's a great idea perfect well we're gonna get into the books yeah we should probably we should probably move forward because i feel like we could actually talk for like are you sure like i don't know this is working this is working (laughs) (laughs) this is going well uh but what what i do want to say is crossland i'm committing to you to this right now next month's pj symposium of media and whimsy is uh the first 15 minutes of the dark tower movie. it cannot be the first 15 minutes of the dark tower movie. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is a good idea i think it's a phenomenal idea PJ. yeah <laughs> i'm just gonna collapse for the rest of the podcast no, and be out also also next step next step so we put a camera behind pj like a gopro or something like that and then watch the reactions of the back of pj's neck just like tense up or like oh my gosh or just like and like yeah and so it's like this full video immer- immersive like level of it you know if, so if I'm, we all mute him at the same time then only jeremy has to deal with him and i think i think that's fine like uh, you guys can just true. have a podcast with me we just turn on <laughs> We're back. We're back to that, huh? Okay, so we've talked a lot about a lot of things, which is wonderful. I, I love. I love this show for this reason. But we're here to talk about Iron Gold, and Iron Gold is I actually shockingly has, especially in this reread and kind of reading it really slow with PJ, has become my second favorite book in the series. And so there's there's a lot here to unpack. Uh, I think one of the things that I want to lead off with is obviously this book expands the POV experience and a number of things in in terms of the the story and the world and the eyes of which we get to see through the world or see the world through. Who's your favorite new POV? God, that's hard. That's so hard. I want PJ to go first. I think it's Ephraim. I think Ephraim creates a very unique view that's completely out of the out of out of the realm of what we've heard before. To a certain extent, we've heard the plights of Lyria through Darrow and his family. Not much, but a little bit. And then there's Lysander, who's a gold. We've heard his plights before. We've got Darrow. And then Ephraim is completely out of the blue. We don't really know anything about his character other than what we know about Trig and why Why am I blanking right Holiday? now? Holiday? Holiday. Holiday. <laughs> That's her name. Like that, <laughs> I was trying to mouth just, holiday. I was hoping you would look and I think holiday. I was trying to mouth it <laughs> for you. No, call me out for being an idiot. Let's do that. Like it, 
It's no, always going to happen. Hey, Andrew, you don't but, need to delete this. This is fine. You can leave this. <laughs> <laughs> Fun fact, I'm editing the episode. Oh, oh there you go. There Andrew you go. is a bum. <laughs> <laughs> He's just mastering it. That's also staying in. <laughs> but um, there's, there's a progression of his character that we see in a very interesting way. And... Just the content's really cool. I, I like the uh, the heist content. I have to. Agree, mm. So he's my favorite. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna take. Yeah, I like it a lot. Ephraim's awesome. And so my favorite component of this is Lyria and Ephraim interweaving. Uh, actually, so specifically, but I would say so. Lyria is my favorite POV in the new book or the new kind of representation of what Red Rising is. I really like Lyria's POV when it gets to where she's talking to Philippe and how that. And that kind of slow build reveal. And I, I, there's a, I don't want to burn too much of the podcast because there's an upcoming question about favorite chapter. And I have a, an answer for that along these lines. But I think that Mathar and I have been talking about this. We're spending some time talking about Iron Gold last couple of days. And I like this exercise. I do this with both, both Jeremy and Mathar. And it helps me. I'm a very big vocal processor. And all three of us see the series really differently. Uh, we have unique opinions and we don't really, I don't think one of us sees it ex, 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 exactly or precisely the same. But for me, I just like, it sounds weird, but I'm, I'm going to say it for lack of better uh, words. I like honesty with my narrators and I like transparency with my narrators. And I feel like even though Lyria can be, I don't know, sometimes excessive, I feel like, and, and, and kind of like be too quick to anger. She's younger, so that makes sense, right? And then she's also... Her life has been so hard and I feel like I give her a lot of grace in that. And a lot of people consider her, I've heard people say she's whiny or she's this. It's like, but like, look at her life, you know, and look at where she's coming from and what she's been. And, and she has no agency whatsoever. And, but I do like that she's, her inner dialogue is very honest where I look at Ephraim is so interesting, PJ. And I, I agree with you and I love Ephraim and I love Ephraim more because of Trig because I love Trig even for that one snapshot. But I think that where Ephraim is and Lysander can be clinical and they can be dispassionate at times. I like Lyria, who's the opposite of that. And that's how I connect to stories and connect to books. And mm -hmm. I want a character to talk to me. And I feel like Lyria does that a lot. And that's why she's my favorite POV. And I like her a, a lot uh, the whole time. And even though it's weird and jarring. Uh, and the, the very first, the first introduction you get to her, it's, it's hard. You know, we, we, the blue shoes reference I made earlier, but mm -hmm. I, it still doesn't uh, deter me from enjoying that POV. Yeah. We, we make jokes pretty regularly on the show about, about Lyria's chapter and how it all kind of seems like it could open up with dear diary. <laughs> and, and, but that lends itself perfectly to what you're saying and what you appreciate of it. Like it, it is, she is being completely open and just pouring herself into these chapters and uh, is being completely honest. And that makes total sense. I, I personally like the diary thing was a joke mm -hmm. at first. It was a one time joke that I cracked and then it just PJ kept bringing it up and I was like, all right, it's going to be a joke from now on. <laughs> yeah. But also it's very true because it does give that honest and open lens for Lyria and that makes her a very, very interesting character. And I do find some of those critiques to be very harsh of Lyria that say that she doesn't have any agency. It's like, well, of course she doesn't have agency. She's an ant inside of this giant mechanism. She can't, she alone cannot have that much agency. Um, but she does have agency over certain things. And what I think is really interesting that you mentioned about Lyria is her agency is actually shown more 
from Ephraim's perspective than her own perspective, which is really an interesting thing that I think a lot of people don't pick up on. And I only picked up on it when I read it really slow. Hmm. I like that. Mather, your favorite or Jeremy. Um, I, 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 okay. So starting out first half of the book, Ephraim all the way, Mm -hmm. like just solidly Ephraim, although close second Lysander actually was a close second for me. Like I was, I was very much looking forward to Lysander's chapters. I wasn't bored a second in Lysander's chapters. Like his POV was refreshing because it was so far removed from the core, right? In a place that we'd spent very little time up till Morningstar, right? And even then it's a a sliver of the story. And like there are ways like the examination of gold society as maybe I think that the rim represents maybe a closer uh, approximation of what gold society was intended to be, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm. honorable, like the structure is meant for the benefit of all, right? And even though it's still a bastardization of that, it is, I think, closer. And so getting to see that, right, is is yeah. really interesting, even in the in the trial, right, of, of uh, Romulus, like, um, I think helps a lot I'm, that wasn't a spoiler right like that would happen in iron gold shit no <laughs> okay. no no it's iron gold yep, <laughs> like, you're fine wait fuck oh, you're fine. i was trying to remember what did i read in the first chapter <laughs> okay yeah so that to me was like almost like it was like neck and neck with ephraim because like pj said like all of that stuff was new for me right and that was the stuff that i had said i'd lamented over and over to philip and jeremy like ah there's like so much greediness in this world and all we ever see is war we're always on the front line always on the front line mm-hmm. in the first trilogy and boom iron gold mm-hmm. throws you into the nitty gritty of the city right it is cyberpunk all of a sudden and through every one of those chapters right you are in the middle of a heist you are in the throes of a criminal organization right and that that is to me so appealing and yet what i'll say is that by the end of the book i found myself looking most forward to Lyria's pov that's mm. when i finished wow, the book okay. i was very much looking forward to how things wrapped up for her because of that crossover with her and Philippe, you know, Ephraim is Philippe. Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) You bastard. Like, I know you're kidding, but for the split second, I was like, oh shit. (laughs) You're in that zone. You're protecting PJ right now. I should have done it. I shouldn't have looked ahead. Oh man. I should have just stuck to my guns. I, I don't know. Like, I don't know. You said it already, uh, Philip, and, and I uh, I don't know what else to add. But yeah, by the end of the book, I was so shocked because I did not care for Lyria at all in the beginning because I thought mm-hmm. it was going to be more frontline shit. And it's like, I've got enough of that. I want to know what's mm-hmm. happening, like at the heart of the, of the society. And and I don't think you get any better look at that than that final scene of the book when, when Lyria is mm-hmm. sitting with Holiday. Oh, man, so good. So good. I think Lyria is the bellwether for what's really happening, like in, in a lot of ways to me. You know, she like she's telling you how this war, how Darrow affects all these people, these millions and millions of people, and how it, it just it's a struggle to live life in this world. And it is like it, it could be obvious, it could be the counter or the flip of that, but I think Pierce just portrays it in such a uh, a unique way and an individualistic way that it makes it makes it fun and look i look like i said mather i did look forward to it as well lyria was like what's gonna happen with this girl you know that's like probably i don't i don't know the age can anyone speak to that I, i'm kind of 18 yeah i was about to say i was about to say 18 but that's what it felt like 
So it makes sense. It's it's a great, great addition that I think a lot of people overlook. But I think on rereads, I think everyone picks up their view of Lyria because the first read is just this. You're looking for that same kind of adrenaline off this end of the series. Right. And you have to rebuild that tension. You have to let things grow. And so you plant those seeds and you let them pay off at the end. And I think that that's something that a lot of people get turned off to right away. They're like, well, this isn't clipping at the same pace that I'm used to. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, totally agree. Jeremy, mm-hmm. what's yours? Yeah, so I'm kind of going to tailgun here and, and echo a lot of what's already been said. Cross, um, you actually just brought up the fact that on rereads, Lyria is a better narrative. And and I actually firmly agree with that. That's one of my talking points is um, I, I didn't enjoy Lyria's POV much at all on my first read. Uh, it, it's very like I have two young kids and, and I get plenty of books that are like, the sun is shining and it's so bright. <laughs> and it's like, I have enough of that already. I don't need it in my Pierce Brown books either. But for the reasons you all have said and what she brings and the beauty of the naivete. And I think there's like this realness that, that she brings to it as well, where the one thing I appreciate about the second trilogy is that Pierce isn't trying to write this fairy tale. It's like, what if a society was really overturned? Like what would happen on the back end? And it's like, it's horrible. <laughs> like, like nothing, mm-hmm. hardly anything good comes of it. Not that you shouldn't. I'm just saying that like, it, it's not pretty on the other side. And there's a lot of rebuilding and a lot of road ahead of them. And I think, I think Lyria exemplifies that in this story. Uh, so I, I gained a lot of appreciation for, for Lyria's uh, POV on, after, the, after my first read. Like my favorite is, is still Ephraim and actually Mathar and I are, are like really kind of locked with each other uh, when it comes to our impressions of the book series for much of the same reason. Suddenly I got Blade Runner. It's you get this dark syndicate, this in-between world where it's like, you know, I mean, yeah, Pierce Brown talks about the duplicity of Darrow a lot, but it's like. It's so much more on the nose with Ephraim. It's like, you know, there's no white hat. There's no black hat. It's all gray area where Ephraim kind of operates and kind of makes you, it kind of forces you to, to decide, like, is this a good character? Is this a bad? Like, how do you feel about Ephraim? And it's interesting that the majority of people come out loving Ephraim. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I, I just appreciate Pierce's writing for that. And, and that just captivated me uh, wholly for, for Ephraim's POV. So I, Fantastic. I, I do want to jump on that last comment that you made. I don't think I love Ephraim, um, but I do think he's my favorite point of view hmm. Hmm. because I think it's the most interesting and I think it's the most, uh, the most new, the most new and the most varied. Okay. But, um, yeah, I, I, I am very conflicted on what I actually think of him as a person, but that's, yeah. Outside of the outside of the scope of the question, you're not, you're not alone like there, that. though. <laughs> not alone. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's a good thought. I think it that, is. Hold on to that thought as you keep reading. That's cool. I'm going to bring in mine. I'm going to be the rogue here and say that I, Mather brought it up a little bit earlier, but I really loved Lysander's perspective yes. strictly because you got this sort of glorified version of Roman society out in the rim. You got this very interesting um, relationship between the 
different Raws and the way that they were even had infighting within them. You can already actually see some of the core corruption that that happens naturally with power over time hitting the Rim and the Raw family directly in Bellafron. Bellafron is the closest to a core gold that you get out in the Rim. Mm-hmm. It's clear that over time that's just going to keep happening. It's going to keep happening and power is going to fall down that cycle over time. And I think that that is one of the really interesting things that Pierce very cleverly laid out through some of the cousins that were in those scenes and the nephews and nieces. Um, they're all killed the, off I by was say cannon and, fodder. Is that what you're trying to refer to? <laughs> yeah. All three of them that just bit it. Well, right, right. But it's going to continue to happen. That's going to continue to spread. We're looking at this. PJ brought this up when we were recording the podcast, too. But when we're looking at the rim, we're only looking at the high nobility for the most part. Mm-hmm. We're only really talking to the absolute upper echelon. So we're not getting a good perspective of the other golds or the other colors within the rim society of which they purport to be this sort of grand revelation that they hold over the core. That's why I really like Lysander's perspective, not necessarily because of Lysander himself, although I do think that he brings a very interesting take on golds because unlike Darrow, he wasn't submersed in gold society from the beginning. He's got kind of he's got all of the nuggets along and he's had these seeds and he's he's been given this path of honor that he could take and instead he chooses justice over honor. And I think that that's a really fun path well not fun it's a very interesting path for him to take i think that this book does a very good job of laying it out and i love it i also ephraim's my favorite because i already talked about ephraim so i have to <laughs> no, that's great and i think so, you know um, uh pierce's obsession with like classical antiquity and you know classical literature and and like you know yes greek and roman tragedies is so evident I think he relished being able to write just like a mini tragedy, like, you know, a mini sort of like play mm-hmm. in Lysander's POV. And I, I just, as I was reading it, I could tell that like he wasn't struggling with this. He was like, I know, like, I, I know exactly what I want from this. Like, I, it just felt to me like Pierce was in his element writing that and that it was a challenge for him to write Lyria and Ephraim. Like, I don't know that for sure. I didn't ask him that or anything, but like, that's how it felt that like, oh man, this is difficult. This is a, ch- this is a challenging story to tell. And what's happening with Lysander sort of writes itself in some ways, right? It's, the, it's, it's mm-hmm. very, mm-hmm. it's very smart. And I, I, I really appreciated it. Yeah. The, I, I'm very well versed in the classics and that's part of the, the reason that I chose Red Rising as the first book series that we were going to cover because I think it blends science fiction and fantasy and the classics in a very fantastic way. And that's something that I really appreciate and always try to bring out and make sure that PJ knows as I'm, we're going through and reading this is like, hey, PJ, did you know this is de Tocqueville? Hey, PJ, did you know that this is <laughs> all, bringing up all these different philosophers into the conversation and all of the various quotes that people are saying just as lines, but are actually direct quotes ripped from other people's mouths. And it makes for it makes for a fun mix. And he really pulls out pulls it out in iron gold. Like mm-hmm. it's really it's present. For the record, for that question that he asked, like, did you know this is blank? It's almost always no. (laughs) He knows it's almost always no. (laughs) But uh, laying laying, laying a little bait for you, laying little traps. I'm, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Landmines, landmines. I actually have a question for Crossland on that front. Yeah. Would you have this much of a granular, like, scope of things? And like the references and everything, if we didn't approach it on like this small 40 page chunk at a time thing, like, or, or do you pick it up on your initial read? 
I'd say like 60 to 70% I pick up on the initial read. But okay. there there have been a number of deep cuts where I've been like, oh, I recognize that now that I'm reading it slower and I'm catching it. But when he like poet when when he like poems it out, mm-hmm. I'm like immediately I'm like, oh, that's that's Paradise Lost. That's Milton clearly. The, there are just all these different phrases that you just kind of absorb when you live in that atmosphere for so long. So okay. a lot of Luciferian imagery from Paradise Lost and and whatnot. But yeah. Hmm. It, it depends. There's some that I have to like. It, one of the things that I found really interesting is uh, Ephraim and all the references to art was something that I had actually had to do a decent amount of research on to kind of understand his perspective and the way that he was viewing things, everything through art and the way that a lot of his perspective can be viewed through the paintings that he references over the course of those chapters. So that makes Ephraim a very interesting and different character because he's not necessarily inspired by writings so much as he is paintings. That's something to keep an eye out for love that on the reread pj you had the next question i did um do you think tongueless is narratively intended to be a, re- a replacement of ragnar and pax or does he serve a different bigger picture whoever wants to go i'll, I'll, I'll take this uh just because it's fresh for me i um man you know i i, I want to say this in a way that doesn't sound like uh dismissive to anybody but i like kind of forgot about him in the book like <laughs> i mean he's brought up and every time he's brought up i'm like oh yeah that like <laughs> that big obsidian guy that they're with right like that's that's kind of how i feel he's about there and yet i'm not sure i'm not sure 100 why so like it, it's interesting you bringing up this question made me question like did i miss something in the book like is there more to this character that i didn't see and like is pierce setting him up like for something later on because he doesn't say anything and he doesn't do a whole lot maybe he is i guess so that maybe it's to make apollonius feel bigger right so now you've added an obsidian to your ranks you didn't have any and so it makes maybe apollonius's size seem grander that he's facing down and able to like have such presence in the midst of not only Darrow several and the howlers, but also in front of uh, a cold blooded killer. <laughs> like, right. like let's be clear. That's like how I, he's written is just to be this like cold. He doesn't say anything. I think to give him even more presence in those scenes, like there is a, uh, mm. there's a brute in the room, right? Like, Exactly. An imposing there nature. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because he's silent. And, and what's, so, the, what's the D&D version of that, Mathar? Like barbarian? A, a bruiser or a, a barbarian yeah, or something like that? He, so, yeah. yeah, he's a barbarian. Totally. He is. Yeah. Like, he he also has a gentle nature about him, which I think maybe that's where, like, the sort of, like, comparison to Ragnar and Pax comes from. Like, maybe that, like, gentle side that you don't see, like... Appreciates music. Man- you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right? He's cultured. Right? Like, but, mm-hmm. you know, obviously meant to keep Apollonius in check and the fact that Apollonius is still able to, like, be threatening says a lot more about him than it does about Tongueless, maybe? Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's that's fair. And then the other three of you guys, if this is something that it's tough to answer from the next book, you guys can just defer to the next question because it's kind of nice to have <laughs> the the two people who haven't heard the next book uh, talk about it a little <laughs> bit. And I, don't, I don't know if it's difficult to... No, no, no. For, so with more information. I'm very good at talking about this shit and lying to <laughs> you. Yes, you are. <laughs> we so <laughs> our true. our show real fast, Jeremy. I want Jeremy to answer this, but we do this, PJ too. Like 
we take our our show method is that we all know the story. We all know what's coming, but we do segment everything out. Like, you know, we, we kind of talk through the books as they're happening for us. So we've built in this restraint for each other, but also for the audience so that if they were to listen, um, we, we've gotten away from that a little bit, but that's how we started. So we've kind of like, it took a lot of practice, honestly, to not like just want to jump ahead, but, and Cross is probably the best of us all in this, in this, uh, arena, but we've all like learned this, uh, through, you know, practice or through editing. <laughs> but Jeremy, you want to say something about, uh, tongueless. Yeah. So I, I, I think I can only answer for myself, um, like in context of the book, PJ, but for me, I see this shift of Severo in this book where Severo was used very much for levity uh, by Pierce in the first trilogy. I know you guys describe Tongueless as like a bruiser and everything, but I was brought joy and, and like a, the word I use levity, like when with the smiles and the playing with a dog. And, and I think there's a lot of heavy themes uh, and just darkness throughout this book that has to be broken up. Otherwise, it will, will overwhelm a, a reader. And I think Tongueless actually serves that purpose uh, for me personally. I, do, I don't think of him so much as a traditional obsidian. I don't think of him as a brute. He, he re- lends some comic relief throughout the story. Mm-hmm. Without speaking, he's much more like, well, I don't know if wise is the right term. Introspective, I guess. I don't know. He 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 doesn't he doesn't necessarily provide the same brutish just raw strength nature that a lot of the obsidians give off. Well, he's certainly slow to speak. But I'm <laughs> there you go. I was going to yeah. say do obsidians have <laughs> poise? True. Can There's an that. obsidian have poise? I'm sure they can. Yeah. Exactly. I think PJ um let me let me jump in here. I think PJ you're kind of answering your own question in a way, right? Like a little bit. Yeah, like which is a it's a cool thing to arrive at that conclusion, but it's like you're just you just described a really individual character that does not echo Pax or Ragnar, and you're and you're just like your past, just like two that's, minutes of talking. It's true. And so I think that you you have, through the conversation that you just had with Mathar and with Jeremy, you're now kind of arriving uh, at that at that place where you're realizing they are different than Ragnar or Pax in a lot of ways, or rather, Tungus is very different and brings uh, the own own unique qualities to the story, and also to to let you know like. That question, I think Cross can speak to this. The Red Ri- Red Rising was not a pervasive, huge thing on the internet around the Iron Gold era. Like it was, it's grown a lot. But that question was asked quite a bit on the places that you could get Red Rising content. You know, like the even like the Dark Age ish uh, time and like the Iron Gold. So it's not a goofy question by any means. It's a question that I think we all had when we read Iron Gold. Like, well, what's the deal with this guy? You know, like why and why and and. Ex- trying to explore that mentally, but I think I think you actually just summarized it really well uh, to yourself. Yeah, I think I <laughs> I came to a lot more of a revelation during this conversation than I That's thought. That's what's would, so, so great about this, Philip. I need to do that more often. I need to be like PJ. You've actually figured it out, <laughs> but I also don't want to say that because it's also I don't want to be conclusive about the yep. end of the story. Yeah, you know, it was it was good that you got to step in and fill in for me <laughs> there. In a in a sort of dad way, I'm great. a dad for the podcast. I'm, 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 podcast dad, podcast dad. Philip is the podcast dad. I, I'll take go. it. Jeremy has been a dad longer than I have, but I'll still I'll I'll still take that mantle. 
Yeah, I, I really I love Tongueless as an add to the to the narrative. I never felt like you replaced Ragnar because he did feel he does feel like this different kind of spirit inside of the story. Uh, but he does hold kind of that similar stature as Mather was kind of making it out to be. You know, he's he's standing tall and he's over top. There there is this interesting thing where he's considered a threat for a good part of the novel, where they're questioning whether or not he's a, a good person or a bad person or someone that they should be taking around. And I think it is the moments, as Jeremy mentioned, like the dog and some of the additional levity that he gets to add as sort of the fathers fight each other between Severo and Darrow. He, do, he does kind of add those lighter moments to the story in addition to Lyria's POV, for sure. With that, I wanted to talk about our favorite chapters mm-hmm. of this book. What what's What's our favorite chapters going around the circle? We should. Uh, can I be the dad again? Yeah. Can we establish an order? <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> sure yeah let's go absolutely. let's go uh philip jeremy mather that'll be the order pj cross okay i'll go last sweet i i have a tandem answer i love i i hope that i hope this gets echoed by other people and and are here i really like chapter 35 for Lyria and chapter 39 for ephraim when we're seeing the uh can, correct me if I'm wrong, crossing that too. When we're seeing the abduction of the children, those two component, oh, two, yeah. those two things. So mm-hmm. you're seeing uh, Lyria's point of view of all hell breaking loose uh, inside the aircraft, and then you getting you're getting the flip or the counter of Ephraim, you know, using that grav well to suck down the air car. It's been again, this has been two years for me since I've read this book, so I apologize. I'm using the wrong vernacular here, but uh, that is just so exciting. Regardless of of me hating the idea of two characters that I care about, mostly because I care about their parents, but still care about <laughs> that they're they're about to be abducted, terrifying but exhilarating and exciting. And uh, you know, there's a lot of Ephraim moments that are so exciting in this book. But to me, that was the height of suspense uh, for the entire book, and I really liked those two. I don't like the fact that there's, th- I think, three Lysander chapters in between those two chapters. <laughs> uh, but because uh, yeah. I'm like, oh, my gosh, like Lyria is getting blah, blah, blah. it's it's all this crazy stuff happening. And you flip the page like Lysander. And then you go to a meal yeah, with like, Lysander. <laughs> Good night. Um, yeah. So but but those two chapters pairing together, 35 and 39 are my favorite uh, chapters to kind of, uh, you know, not to. Not to say chapter, I, I can't answer that fully. It just has to be two chapters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. All right. So, sorry, you, you asked for an echo. You're not getting it from me. My favorite chapter <laughs> is uh, one of Lysander's POVs. It's chapter 61. That's going to be the Romulus trial. Cross, oh. uh, you were talking about the classics. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm so glad we touched on on this fact when we were talking about favorite POVs because this exemplifies why I think people are attracted to the Lysander POV. This is that classic, beautiful, idealized gold society. Um, again, just as a disclaimer, we're not justifying gold society, but, <laughs> not at but all. what it was intended to be, the the honor, um, the beauty of Romulus falling on his sword. I mean, right? he could have taken the out real quick, but you get this amazing honor and, and honesty coming from Romulus, where he's like, nah, you know what? I actually didn't know about it. I'm going to die now. I, I think also just Dido's miscalculation. You, you kind of get that that interesting dynamic between, you know, the the Rim Society and a Venusian and what she brings to the table and, and how she's kind of trying to undercut this society and, and gain power, but at the same time 
save her beloved husband and fails in doing so. And, and I think it's beautifully written and, uh, yeah, I, I'll stop there. It's my favorite chapter. It is a genius tragedy. It is mm-hmm. a geniusly written section, especially given the trial and sort of the draconic nature of the whole thing and the way that that all plays out against her favor just feels brilliant. Somehow he tucked in a little bit of a conversation uh, like a this this book is a lot of things. It's a heist novel. It's a second heist novel in Breaking Out Apollonius. Yeah. <laughs> it's nice. a, a a trial. We get, we get a freaking trial as though it's I've been watching Better Call Saul, so that's in my head. Oh, but Kramer, nice. Kramer, yeah. like there, there are just so many different elements to story being wrapped up in the single the single book that it's it's wild, and that's why I think it's grown to be one of my favorites. Is for exactly those reasons that and the execution of Romulus at the end. Those two chapters tied together for me, and I, I can, agree with you. That's that's a great. I love great it. Section. And can I posit something else that, like, again, this is an you know an idiot's <laughs> sort of observation. I am not trained in uh, classical literature. I had a couple you know semesters of uh, advanced lit, but talking about the idolization of gold society, I think it's so expertly written because it's told from Lysander's perspective, right? Mm. His naivete is obvious in that, right? You know he's making mistakes about his perception about how things are going to go, right? He's not a, a statesman. He's not a trained... He's trained in, in you know, uh, everything that Cassius could teach him about, you know, and everything that he knew from his, uh, I guess, first 10 years, eight years, 10 years in uh, the Citadel, right? Like uh, on, on Luna. But this is a young man who's got a flawed perspective and his perspective of what happens to romulus and what's happening with the raws i think is what kind of like makes this such a fun experience right it's like you're seeing it through somebody's like he's describing it as being this honorable thing and like you don't really know what's going on behind closed doors you don't really know what every single person in that room is thinking but the fact that lysander is seeing them as like this great honorable society this is what gold society should be right honor and justice and like you know virtue it's i think it just like seals it right as that perfect sort of um homage to classical literature so that that's kind of one of the reasons that i liked it but that's not my favorite chapter my favorite chapter is 43 and this is when i think lyria became my favorite pov uh her on the run from the syndicate Mm -hmm. running through the streets of lost city far from hyperion and her literal crawl through the mud right back to uh safety is just thrilling i i loved every second of that chapter and i think that's the 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 part of me that was longing for blade runner right like in the story looking for that and then finally got it in this chapter and and i just i don't even know what else to say about it because it was really hard to pick a chapter but yeah i this is when i fell in love with i think lyria's side of the story I think one of the most cinematic moments for me too, Mathar, like you can feel like the pulse of the city. You can feel the, like almost like we talked about, Mathar and I talked about Blade Runner uh, enough, you know, a lot, lot, but like feeling that kind of soundtrack (laughs) to that single chapter too. Sure. Like that, it feels, it feels like there's there's a momentum to that moment that is so entrancing. And uh, I love that. I love that too. I do want to go back to chapter 61 because I just want to, I want to get this in here real fast because I want to throw my favorite quote in really quick here. Uh, which yeah. comes in chapter 62, but it happens 
because of the trial. But I think my favorite yeah. quote in the entire book is this is it is from Romulus as the speaker to Dido. This is not the end. I loved you before I ever met you. I loved you until the sun I love you until the sun dies. And when it does, I will love you in the darkness. Goodbye, wife. And just like, oh my gosh. Like I can't imagine saying those words to my own wife, but at the same time, uh the stoic and poetic nature all at once. Like it's just like incredible. Uh and so cross the reason I bring that up fully is I also want you to tell me, is that borrowed from something that you know? Because again, I'm, I'm, I echo math or I'm not like a trained or I'm not into classic literature. I like Steinbeck and I like Upton Sinclair a lot. That's considered classic, but it's not, it's very different than like the Count of Monte Cristo and these other more poetic things. Yeah. Yeah. I, I go even further back with the classics and I think about like, I, I talk a lot about Marcus Aurelius because that's where a right. lot of um, both Romulus and what Lauren's character are derived from and later now Darrow's like they're they're very borrowed from Marcus Aurelius um, in terms of perspective on, on the world and everything else. But this is not something that's written anywhere else. It's not cribbed. Um, there's there's nothing directly like this. This is a completely original phrase and quote. The only thing that I would add to that is that it is in the mindset of someone like Marcus Aurelius who would be like, I will love you forever. I also understand he he has he goes on to talk about the reality of things at one point, and he says wine is just dead grapes, uh, meat is just a rotting cow that I'm consuming, and he, he gets into like these very visceral descriptions of the reality of things and their their sort of post processes that we we enjoy, and I think that this is sort of an extraction of that that extends it and goes, hey. I am your husband and I will always be the one that loves you the most from my perspective. And I will continue to do so even when I am dead and that will that will live beyond me. And he just he took even that little bit and he cranked it up to 11 with the when (laughs) and even when it's dark, like even when the sun dies. uh, By God, one of my favorite lines in the book, Mm, for sure. That's that's why I wanted to mention it, because it's like we don't have a favorite quote section and that's something that we. It when and if capable or possible, we like that. to do favorite it's, quotes as well. And yeah. uh, it's, it's a fun little section. So I wanted to bring at least one quote up here real quick. So this, I'm sorry. This book is like a romance novel because you get the other. My favorite. <laughs> it's like four romance novels. If you <laughs> no, know it totally is. Because like, you get the whole yeah. like, you know, Mustang or, you know, Mustang is like the ocean. And it talks about the undercurrents and stuff. And that's that's in uh, one of the first couple chapters. And that's my favorite, like, romance quote of the book. So. Uh, there you go. He's bringing the romance. Well, not only that, but like to to kind of like piggyback off what Cross is saying. I mean, it's not just Aurelius, but it's like Cicero too, right? Like the ideas of like you know yes. uh, fr- fraternal yep. like kinship, right? Like friendship, everything. Like Cicero tried to normalize like telling all your friends you love them like immensely, <laughs> like just like friendship in Cicero's mind was like as sacred a bond as like you know monogamous like you know uh marriage or something like that right like you a a good friend was as important as anything in life right someone you could trust and i think that's echoed like you said not just in this like rim society uh gold society but like also in darrow constantly looking for who can i trust right and like I, i think it's beautiful I would almost say that Darrow's lost it, right? So, like, Darrow's kind of lost this mm-hmm. edge right here, and I think that Severo still has it, though, and that's why Severo respects him and goes out on this entire mission to, to do all of these things is because he's lost, not because he has he hasn't lost it yet, he loses it at the end, but he's he's doing this out of sort of that fraternal yeah. love, 
And also that's why Victor wants to protect him is because he's like, I know that he has this fraternal love for you and he will do whatever you need mm-hmm. him to do. But Darrow doesn't honor the bond that same way. Mm-hmm. He's the Reaper, baby. <laughs> he's the Reaper. He's no, he's no longer Darrow. It's a, it's a fucking problem. Oh, God. So me. So my favorite chapter is chapter 29, which is a Lyria chapter called Rust and Shadow. And this is her excursion to Hyperion. So it, it this is for me the most like human chapter of the entire bunch where she is basically going to New York City from Kansas. Yep. Like she True. <laughs> yeah. Like she Subway so well put. Yeah. Doesn't understand the the line system or buying tickets and decides to walk five miles. Like because you do that in New York City. Yeah. Like th- this this entire chapter, it's also where she like meets Philippe and is accosted and almost arrested. Like this to me is the most human and most like relatable chapter of the entire book. So is this when she goes to the hall of screams as well? Is that, or that prior? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, Good one. That's a good one. I like that. I got that. I got that trivia question, right? No one else did. I stole that one. (laughs) Does this start with her like overhearing a conversation or does it end with that? Is that around that time where she runs into holiday or is that a Uh, totally space? I think that's a different chapter shortly thereafter or before. I think it's uh, before that is the, is the chapter where she's walking the talking with the doctor Yep, and and notices the gray and the red talking in like a in like a jam field. Um, but I don't know about talking about. But then holiday. at the very end of that, she runs into Holiday, but yeah, she doesn't does know she? that it's Holiday. It's just okay. in a wolf. She's a gray in a wolf cloak, and right. so she knows that she's a howler. Okay. okay, yeah, yeah, she figures that out later. But th- no, that's a yeah. great, great choice, PJ, because uh, without that chapter. I mean, you don't have the, I mean, without that chance meeting, which is not chance, we find out it isn't chance, right? But if that meeting, the way that that ends is, is her getting fingered for pickpocketing and bailed out by Philippe, you don't have the climax of the book, right? Like it just doesn't Mm -hmm. exist. So, right. Yeah, that's exactly such an important moment. And I think your band, I couldn't put it any better than you did, but I, now that you're saying it, it's so true, right? Kid in the big city, like for the first yeah. time, just, yeah. and that's how I felt because this is the first time we're really getting, as readers, getting to experience Hyperion and, and, and Lost City, right? It's been touched on, mentioned, but we're spending all our time in, in staterooms and, and, you know, war rooms and uh, gardens and villas and shit like that, right? So like for the mm-hmm. first time, we're walking and living vicariously through her eyes as she's experiencing, you know, the, the splendor and also, you know, the, uh, the darker side, you know, both, both sides of the city, you know, in just a matter of chapters. So, yeah, we, we talked about this on the show when we came to this chapter, but in experience that she had basically right away where she's trying to buy a ticket and doesn't understand what to do and gets embarrassed and flustered and just leaves is something that I feel like almost everybody that visits New York City experiences. <laughs> San Francisco. I did. I did that same thing I in San Francisco. Too. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, right. But also then following that up with, I'm in a big city. This is crazy. This is awesome. I'm going to spend half my monthly paycheck on a coffee. It, it's just this this weird, like, 
I don't know what's going on. And these are normal things, and it doesn't seem normal to me. And we're just kind of going with the flow a little bit. And we're following her through this chaotic experience of a normal day in a big city. And it's great. Like, it's it's very, very human. You know, I felt a lot like Lyria. And, and I don't know if Minnesota's a great comp for this, but Cross uh, in North Carolina will definitely feel this. But when I went to the East Coast and I ended up on toll roads... Oh my God. I was like, what the hell? Like I, I roll up to it's this place experience. and they want money from me. And I'm like, I don't have cash. And, uh, so mm-hmm. they're like, Oh, just let it take a picture. We'll just ticket you in the mail. Uh, that was my very Lyria feeling moment right there. Yep. You know, very relatable. The first time going through a toll road is one of the weirdest things. And having driven through so many right now, they're more of an irritation, but I understand why they exist. I get it. I don't need, I don't need a lecture in the comments section, please. But I, <laughs> we get we get those every once in a while um but i i totally agree with you it is that kind of foreign element uh and it it is a very strange east coast experience it's good to hear that san francisco is a similar experience with the rail because that was a, a very similar thing that i had with the new york subway system when i moved there a year and a half ago mm-hmm. two two and a half years ago how fuck it was so i lived there for a year um but and then COVID happened uh <laughs> and that's exactly how you feel it's like oh shit well i can't figure out where i'm going i'm just gonna walk because i kind of want to walk through the city i kind of want to experience it and i don't want to be stressed out and like be around all these people and i agree with you pj that is a fantastically humanizing moment for lyria and i think it actually picks her up out of this sort of negative perspective into one of revelatory magnificence and understanding like we 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 get to we get to sympathize in her smallness in that moment. Yeah, the pace at which it's written, right? The pace at which things happen to her and she experiences this is very akin to like, you know, walking around like Times Square or walking, you know, down Market Street in San Francisco and just kind of like it's overload, right? You're you're overstimulated completely and you're you're thrilled and it's easy to forget, you know. Like, and us as readers for a moment, we forget about that tragedy, that deep, dark thing, the reason that she's there, right? For a moment. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a great chapter. It's a good call. <laughs> Just dig dig us out of that positive hole and put us right back into that. <laughs> oh, yeah, your whole family died. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> moment. Yeah, that is a that is a fantastic chapter, without a doubt. And My favorite. Yep, you, Cross, and your last. N- what, what were you going to say? Oh, okay. Uh, my favorite is it, it's, it's so tough to describe because it's not just one chapter, but it's a series of chapters that kind of accumulate like Philip on this question. For me, it's the first three chapters that kind of redefine Darrow in a very interesting way. We lead off with a very, I'm, I'm big, I grew up playing Warcraft. I loved Warcraft, mm-hmm. uh, Warcraft nice. three and whatnot. When, when, um, Darrow is walking up the steps of his, of the secondary triumph after claiming Mercury. It reminds me of the moment where Arthas is returning home and he, he is this sort of zombification of the man that he knows when he goes to kill his father. It, it gives me these same sort of moments that were very evocative in my childhood. I love that first chapter, but for me, it's really, it's that lead up to the third chapter where Darrow turns off the Reaper and becomes Darrow and recedes down into this human moment. We talk about it all the time in the podcast. I mentioned it numerous times by name, but the fantasy is the name of that chapter. And I think the fantasy is so important to set the stage for Darrow's character in this secondary series. It really sets him up as wanting 
and believing that there is this other universe in which he could exist as his father, but it's not one that's attainable as it's been proven throughout the series because he has to be a father to the other thing that he birthed, which is this rebellion, mm. the society that well, not the society, the Republic, but this society, small S capital S, you know, mm-hmm. different, but <laughs> so, yeah. I, so I think that's really definitive for, for Darrow. I think as far as a conversation standpoint goes, based on that answer, I think it makes a lot of sense to bleed straight into the next question, uh, yep. which is how do you feel about Darrow's internal struggle between wanting to be a father and wanting to be a warlord? And do you see the Reaper and Darrow as individual discrete characters? Ugh, that's a big question. Um, so I'm a I'm a big Daryl fan. Like I love Daryl a lot. I've I've talked about that in our podcast. Um, but I think I'm trying to I'm just trying to think of my words real fast. But I don't think Daryl wants. I don't know what Daryl wants in this book, and I don't know if want it would be the right word, the right phrasing that I would choose. I don't think he wants to be a dad. I mean, speaking of watching Dar- Jeremy with his kids, and and I know the way I feel about my kids. I, I don't think he wants to be a dad at all. I think his actions are making choices for him i think lamenting the idea of wanting to be a dad isn't the same as actually choosing to want to be a dad but i don't also that 100 percent. i've gotten into so many arguments on the internet about that uh, they're different things <laughs> so but i don't think he wants to be a l- warlord either i think he i don't i don't know what because the answer my answer is i don't know what he wants I think his sense of duty outweighs everything for Daryl. I think that's who he is. He's a soldier and like Holiday and, and like, so they, they, you're not the mission Holiday says, you know, or, you know, he's not the mission. I think Daryl fools us uh, a lot by thinking or saying that like he cares about these things in some ways, but really he cares about the mission or the process of that mission and goes about it. Um, and he's very similar to Holiday, but he just has a lot more feelings. <laughs> so um, where Holiday can be a lot more clinical. So I don't know what he wants, uh, but I don't I don't think he wants war necessarily. But I don't think he wants to be a father either. So I, I'm I'm like left confused by Daryl a lot uh, in this book. Again, I, I apologize. I feel like I should have. You guys all did such a good job preparing these questions, and then also both Jeremy and and uh, Matha reading this book uh, recently, and me not. But at the same time, I think I'm just left. I'm left with a different version of this character than I, I uh, than I had in the first three books. But at the same time, uh, I just think that he is supposed to be kind of an enigma here, and I don't think he's supposed to be very interesting necessarily here either. I think it's supposed to open the door, where Pierce is trying to show you that this character is kind of just, uh, you know, a duality or a different side of the character, but also uh, making uh, him not the interesting focal point that he was in the prior three books. Yeah, I want to I want to jump like right on the back of what what Philip said and that's simply because I completely agree. I would express it as Darrow wants to want to be a father and husband. You know, this this idea of red Darrow is this idea of like a bygone age. Something that is that's gone, it's like childhood. Like you you, you could try to get back there but it's not going to be attainable. I think cross that's basically what you were saying. And I, I completely agree with that sentiment. 100%. Yeah. And it's like, what do you really want? I, I like the way you put it. Actually. I, I think I would, I feel the same way. It's like Darrow has birthed a different child and that's the rebellion. And it's like, that is the one that he is beholden to. 
And unfortunately, mm-hmm. that's not his own son. That's not his own wife. It's it's all about the rebellion. And and Philip's right. Like your actions speak louder than words, right? And what is Darrow choosing in this moment? He's he's just ditching it. He's like, oh yeah, my son got kidnapped. Okay, cool. Like Mustang's got that, right? Virginia can handle this. I've got to keep going with my plan here on the rebellion and, and keep things rolling. And it's tragic. I mean, that that like that breaks my heart. He's dead with, inside. With, oh my gosh, yeah. I would extend that even just a little bit and say that he has chosen this over the last decade. He's chosen this for a decade. And we see the accumulation of that choice in the fantasy. That's that chapter. It's like, we could do this and this this could be our dreamy world. You could back up, Darrow. And he's like, yeah, I could, but I'm not gonna. (laughs) Stares off into the distance, imagining war with the rim in another two decades. I I wish I had gone before jeremy because i <laughs> or either one of you <laughs> my answer is probably not going to be as accurate or as poetic but i can't help but wonder who darrow would be and what he would have done in that situation in particular finding out pax is missing and deciding whether or not to go after the Ashlord in the first place like i can't help but question how he would have acted had Lorne, you know, survived, had Augustus been the father figure he needed, had he ever had a father figure, had he ever had, uh, you know, any kind of parental figure of any gender that their validation would have been enough, right? Like, I think when I look at Darrow in this book specifically, I see someone who is like no amount of validation from society or any of his friends who are his subordinates is good enough, right? Like, I don't know who he's seeking validation for. I don't know what he's striving for. I don't think Darrow wants to be a father to either of these things as much as he wants a father, as he wants someone to say like, you did it. Congratulations. He is definitely seeking validation. One of the things you said just lit me up and I have to comment on top of it is one of the things that sets me back in Darrow's perspective a lot is the moment when he's getting scalped or near scalped and Apollonius saves him. Mm-hmm. He says something along the lines of not even my own mother would recognize me with the amount of blood that is pouring over my face. And I, I think that that is actually a separation. I don't think it's so much the damage that's happening to Darrow in the immediate moment so much as it is the way that Darrow is changed mm-hmm. fundamentally from the moment when he's recognized by Deanna in the mines at the end of Golden Sun. She's like, I know you anywhere versus Darrow is like, you wouldn't know me now because I'm a sat I'm I've absolutely brutalized people and I continue to slaughter people and I do not think of them as the same because they're on the other side. It's a very different Darrow and a very different equation now. And it doesn't it's it's this dislocation over the course of Morningstar in the box that it's just it ruptures through Darrow's character throughout this book. I'm going to push back just a little bit cross and say that that sure. to me that strikes me as dysmorphia. That is how Darrow sure. thinks that is the truth that Darrow has convinced himself yep. of, right? And you're absolutely right about that. But I suspect that all it would take is one heavy sob, one moment of weakness, of vulnerability. And I think anybody, Deanna, anyone, look, look, I, I think, I think Darrow is still there. I, I, I don't think he's dead inside. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's gone. I think that he's convinced himself that he's too far gone. I think that is why he doesn't turn back. I think that's why he doesn't go back. It's not because, oh, I've got another child I've got to care for. I think he's afraid 
of who he's become at this point. I think he's afraid of himself. I think he's so insecure through this entire, like he is the broody POV we get for three books and he is the <laughs> broodiest POV in this book. And it is just like- Despite what Ephraim tries. Right, no, no, Ephraim <laughs> is like a nihilist in some ways, right? That's not Darrow. Yeah. Darrow just wants so right. desperately to like feel like he's good enough for the rising, good enough for the Republic, good enough for his family. And I think he just doesn't believe any of that. And I think until he's convinced that like, he has done his part. Like he, he, he'll never stop because he's a hell diver, right? That's mm-hmm. what hell divers do. And he's the reaper. And he, so, I mean, so, sure, yeah, he thinks he's the reaper. <laughs> yeah. So I, I guess that that kind of opens up like all four of you your answers. <laughs> you didn't explicitly answer it, but just based on how you answered, you see him as a single entity, correct? Oh, no, I see him as two different people, which is what I was trying to describe with the Deanna moment. But I do understand the body dysmorphia comment, of course. I just think that there's a a separation of character that happens. And then I think I need to check my thoughts real quick. I had to do the same. (laughs) Yep. Uh, There is a separation of character, especially evident in, in this book, that is very real and very fundamental and it feels like at the very end of the book he is rage consumed and he's defining himself as the reaper stepping into the next novel and he's stepping out of the personality of being the father to his child and he's stepping into the personality being the father of the rising into dark age could i say that maybe he's even more people than so to answer the question i think i think we all answered (laughs) how we feel about darrow's internal struggle but i don't think i answered how i see darrow and and the reaper right i see Sure. The Reaper as this like in name only, right? In like visage, right? It's like a helm that he puts on, similar to Ares. Okay. And when you talk about rage, I think of that as being part of Ares, right? Like he's not summoning the rage of the Reaper. The Reaper doesn't have any rage. The Reaper just comes to collect. That's it. There's no rage in the Reaper. There's rage in Ares. Ares has that righteous indignation, right? And so he embodies a lot of things. Mm. He may call it the Reaper, but I think he's split in so many different ways. And I think his flawed perspective I think is demonstrative of like how like split his own perspective is of like who he is, right? He doesn't, he calls himself the reaper in that final chapter, right? You know, but he doesn't even know what that means at that point, you know, cause he's embodying the reaper so really many is Aries at that point, but especially when Severo effectively steps back from Aries and inside of the chapter before that, where he's, he's basically like, we don't, we don't need to be these titles right. anymore. And he basically, He's like, I don't need to be Aries. He's embodying like all these different like ideals or these emotions or these things. And so I don't see them as different characters. I see them as um, like emotions Darrow's going through, right? Like I see it as, as like maybe like a flow of water that he's like trying to control or turn off, right? And and that's a really bad, you know, metaphor, but like, or analogy, I guess. But like, I, I, I see it as like, it's all him and he is just trying to like compartmentalize his own emotions. And so, yeah, totally for me, Cross, I actually am going to be on the other side from you as well. I, I do see Darrow as an individual when I, when I think of like two different characters, like what comes to mind for me is someone like EO and Persephone, right? They, they very much personify a completely different thought. When I think of Darrow in this moment, I tend, I, I think, I don't want to put words into Mathar's mouth, but I, I 
think I lean that way a little bit more where it's like, you know, we've long talked about this identity crisis that, that Darrow goes through, you know, is Darrow red? Is Darrow gold? Where on the spectrum in between, you know, is Darrow falling today? And I think that's very much where he is too. It's this emotional kind of spectrum that he's going through of, of wanting to want to be a father to embracing warlord but i don't think there's like this duality where he's like a split personality necessarily i i I find him to be just very like singular in those desires in any given moment so i i don't really see them as split people at all i think that actually is on that's what cross was saying you see them as the same right cross i actually do i i think of them well obviously it's the same person right right in in core but I, I do think that Darrow chooses one over the other uh, consistently. Yeah. And so he has a decision complex where he moves between the two. And that's why I think the fantasy that chapter, chapter three, is so important is because it, it dreams up this life where he could live the 10% Darrow that he wants to be. He wants to be that Darrow. He wants to be the Darrow that wanted to be a father. He wants to be the red Darrow, as we've kind mm-hmm. of self-ascribed. Um, but he also wants to be the father to the rising. And that has to be the Reaper because that is the only way that the rising survives. And so I think that there are. I, I think I agree. I'm, I'm at conflict with with that opinion a little <laughs> yeah. bit, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. For sure. um, but I also understand where you're coming from. I, I think that's an interesting question to pose. I just Very see them as two diverging personalities, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Interesting. That was a good question. Not not full personalities, but like full. He's a, he's a unreliable narrator. So there are moments where he's living inside of that he perspective, is. which I think is the fantasy. It is the last chapter of Morningstar. And then there are moments that pop up here and there throughout his perspective in these novels. But then he also or rather in this novel, and then he dips back into the Reaper and he becomes full on warlord at the end again. Well, and, and the question is phrased, not are they different characters, but like, do you see them or or do you read them as discrete characters? And I guess you can in some ways read them individually. But I mean, it is very conflicting. It's a great question. I didn't know yeah, I had so much to say about it. It's it's tough. It's hard. I think it's the core question of this book: is is Darrow the villain or is he a hero? Oh, God, and he can be both. And I, I think right. he's both. I, I think he's, and this is me answering the question. I think they're <laughs> discreet. I, I do think they're discreet. Um, sort of like the ah, uh, just before the climax of Fight Club, where mm. uh, I guess Jack. As we, as we kind of the know him, yeah. the narrator is realizing that there's another personality within him doing all these things in the same body. Um, not, not in the same way that he's like suddenly realizing like all this is going on and I had no idea, but just kind of starting to understand that there's past that paths that he could take uh, starting to understand that there's two very at odds personalities within him. I think it's only complicated when you add in kind of Lauren's question to the equation of is like, I wanted you to be a better man that wasn't obsessed with war. And that's where I really think kind of the division builds with Darrow's perspective is his understanding of Lauren as a person. And then his reflections on Lauren throughout this book. That's where I think it really complicates it where he's like, fuck, I should have been a dad. I should have been a proper dad. I shouldn't have been this warlord and is instead choosing to be the dad to something else, which is also, interestingly enough, probably better for the society in the long run, like for the Republic in the long run. Like, 
I'm not saying he's making the wrong choice. He's just making a choice that is actively against some of his wishes. Uh, if there are any fanfic writers listening, uh, any Red Rising fanfic writers listening, uh, hit <laughs> us up with a story, um, a short story about a mission that the Reaper leads and Darrow is a soldier, uh, is like a howler in like the Reaper's uh, Bad be like, really task force. Cool. I think Darrow would die. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you'd have All to right. pull him out of the death hat. The Reaper would live and Darrow would die. But <laughs> there we go. It's, it's reasonable. Philip, you you look like you've been you've just been pursing your lip this whole time, just ready to No, I think I actually wanted to just take it all in. Honestly. Again, I'm not I'm not trying to use this as a cop out, but I find the discussion was really interesting because my lack my, my distance from the book currently, you know, and then being able to hear this. Uh I do want to say one quick thing. We can explore this if you guys want to, but um, I feel like possibly, I'm not sure where PJ lies. I feel like I cross, I feel like I kind of get where you're coming from in the books, but I feel like, again, and I mentioned this earlier, I'm probably one of the, I'm probably the most emotionally invested in, and that's what just, that's how I connect to things around me. I'm just, I create an emotional investment and I decide if it's worth my time or my, my, uh, whatever it is. And, uh, Darrow is in my mind. Yeah. I'm, I'm deeply emotionally invested in him, but and I feel so that so for me, I feel like I would have the most um, desire to defend him in the conversation and go, oh my gosh, guys, like, no, like he's Darrow's this and blah, blah, blah. But you know what? He's a villain in this book. Like, mm-hmm. tell me he's not. Like, yeah, like, I mean, Wolfgar, tell me he's not. Mm-hmm. Like, the, ch- the teeth like, against the blade will forever haunt me. And yeah. that's the moment he changed. Uh, tell, I mean, an what, at one point. Yeah, at what point am, am I supposed to believe that he's a hero in this book? And again, I love Darrow, but I, I'm also not invested in Darrow in the sense that I need him to be anything. I just love the character. Mm-hmm. And I think he's clearly a villain throughout the entire mm-hmm. entirety of Iron Gold. Uh, and that's just how I remember him. That's what's frozen in my mind. Maybe with a reread or a recent reread, I might have a slight different opinion. I've read the book twice and I, I don't, and hearing you guys talk about it and kind of getting the amalgamation of everything that's being said, I, I mean, we're, we're kind of dancing around it a little bit, but I just, I just would call him a villain. I would, it just, it's, I'm not trying to put a cap on it. Yeah. Totally. I'm, I'm 60, 40 on that. I think there's, when you're talking about the, the Republic in and of itself and how it's evolved from its inception, he is a villain of the Republic but he is the hero of the Republic that he envisioned, if that makes sense. And he is stuck wanting to move forward with what he sought after. And that didn't include all of the changes that happened as everything came together Mm -hmm. and evolved. And at the same time, he's also a, I don't know, a grudge grudge breaker like he he holds grudges so hard and is not willing to um i don't know just relinquish some of the ill will in order to let the republic prosper like it's kind of an all or nothing thing for him so on a whole i think you're right i think he's the villain but granularly and looking from his perspective, his goals are 
pretty noble and pretty in line with what he's actually looking for. Yeah, it's like if we want to bring some like actual classical literature into it, uh, let he among us who is without sin cast the first stone, right? Like, hey, hey. that's great. That's exactly <laughs> kind of where my my brain was going with that. I I I can't help but PJ entirely agree with you. Only from the perspective, I'm just going to say this real quick tie in everyone else's pov darrow is the villain from their povs right and then you mm-hmm. also have darrow's own perspective where he is being evil to his own family mm-hmm. and he is he is I- incredibly volatile inside of the situations and things that he built and so he himself is a villain to those structures but within his own pov he is doing the right thing and he is trying to do the correct thing and that's where my defensive instinct comes in as, as you said previously, Philip, for Darrow, it's like <laughs> he thinks he's doing the right thing. At the very end, he realizes that this entire fucking book was for naught because the Ash Lord was fucked anyway. I want to so, I, I get to yeah. you. I want to tell, tell something to PJ directly, though, because we, we, yeah. we got to continue doing this vein because Jeremy has something he yeah. wants to say. Uh, PJ, you've done a great job answering your own questions better than all of us, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, uh, just, just to, so. I'm just giving you a uh, California to Minnesota pat on the back. There you go. So, there there you go. go. Jeremy, go. <laughs> I appreciate it. I can feel it from here. Yeah. No, I I just think like, you know, it's interesting that we look at this perspective of is is Darrow operating in a sense of duality, like what I think Cross is arguing, or a sense of modality, which is where my argument would come from. And it's just that revelation of like, Either Darrow is in a villain mode during this book or like where Cross arrives, it's like a 60-40 split because of the duality of Darrow. I, I just find that interesting. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to point it out. And and that's really where, where I think it arrives. He's trying to do the right thing, but ultimately he's also doing wrong things to achieve the right thing. He he exists in this gray zone, and that's where I think the, the duality of the Darrow and Reaper exists. That's where this gets back to kind of the base question that we asked is – is that sort of duality that exists along those very gray lines? So this is a good. This is a good. I want to uh, call out Mathar on this because Mathar had something really interesting to say on a phone call. The docks of Ganymede. We, this is something we went in depth on uh, with that Pierce podcast. Yeah, but Mathar had this really interesting observation that you just don't consider, especially in the first trilogy, and you start considering more in the second. But it's like, why is he able to? Why is Darrow able to operate this way? without any Thank checks you. and balances for anything even and, this where is he getting his resources from yeah. like this guy and, is a warlord <laughs> and matthew you brought mm-hmm. this up on a phone call again we we talk off podcast so much about red rising the, the three of us uh and i love the call out by mathar i love the the thought because it's not in the moment you're going and especially when you're in the first trilogy you're entirely in darrow's head so you're just seeing the story the world and the lens and you're so your the only POV you can offer the books is your own POV, which is a weird and meta thing to do, and that's what Mathara mm-hmm. did. And it was like, how is this person getting on this ship, taking it over, watching his best one of his former best friends murder himself, and then be like, you know what we need to do? <laughs> like, like we need to blow this whole infrastructure up. And then you know what? And then he continues this same line. And it's like this interesting thing about going back to tongueless. Um, <laughs> so uh, going back to tongueless, it's like, I mean, isn't it weird that you could can probably consider tongueless probably the most trusted ally in these in these weird pockets and iron gold in some moments? Because 
at this point, I think it's tiresome that Daryl is allowed to act this way without these checks and balances, without getting the 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 uh, the seal approval or the thumbs up from friends. I think that would be so tiresome to be Severo, to be, um, you know, Alexander clearly is just chasing that approval, but otherwise, you know, some of these other former long-standing howlers. And I think that weirdly tongueless kind of is like, oh, this is cool. This guy's, I'm new to this and why not? Let's just do this. <laughs> Fuck yeah. yeah. yeah Thumbs up. Go, good. Um, <laughs> it is. I, this book went such a different way than I thought it would because yeah. I, I, the first trilogy, I spent most of it saying like, how does he, how is he doing all this? How is he getting all these mm-hmm. resources? How is he able to fly across the solar system with like no one knowing like where he's going or like not getting it, not having to even have a council meeting about like, oh, by the way, mm. I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go totally drop bombs on somebody's like, you know, whole, whole deal. And then the, the start of Iron Gold, I'm like, ah, oh, finally a reckoning. And then he just leaves. Dancer poses the core question yeah. right off the bat. Dancer says, like, you, you, you by all means have a right to do these things, but also you don't get to unanimously decide them. And and he like actually brings a reckoning in a lot of ways. I don't agree with Fox Populi. I don't think that they're right, but I think that Dancer was correct in his it, this is actually chapter three into chapter. Yeah five i in think the garden six. with deanna uh it's, yeah. yeah right it did start with deanna in the yeah. garden and everything else when they're when they're kind of chatting about it but he he shouldn't have universal approval and yet he believes he should mm. because ever since the box everything has been going like he has had universal approval he's been sort of this fig i think that's when the division really happens between darrow and otherwise is is the box and i think it's when darrow completely splits and he has these dueling forces within him you don't necessarily want to call them personalities but dueling forces between darrow and the reaper and that's why he can turn it off when he wants to go bomb the dog scanny mead because he's thinking about the future he's thinking like the reaper he's not thinking like darrow who's compassionate to the low colors and otherwise he's thinking about stature he's thinking about civilization he's thinking about survival and i just i just think that's interesting because i think that this book is the reckoning and the book is like you can do this for 10 years but here's the result and it's you're going to mm-hmm. become a villain like and it's that batman quote too can anyone say that i always mess it up it's like you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain nailed it that is good work. it good work. Yeah. yeah i always yeah. i always mess that up but i love harvey dent so um i actually have never shirt yeah. says i believe in harvey Same. dent um but anyway uh that's essentially darrow to me in this book and he becomes that villain mm-hmm. and uh again i'm still deeply emotionally invested in him but still a villain I do mm-hmm. want to get to some of these other questions. They're really, yeah. really good. Yeah. 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 Uh, Victress shows up in this book as a much more independent and vicious character in a different way than usual. Do you think this is due to motherhood or has she always been this as far as her personality goes, but we haven't truly gotten to see it before? Yeah, so I'll lead this one off. I don't think that Victra is any different between any of the books. I I think that this is one of the things that we see manifest itself in the difference between POVs being just from Darrow's perspective and multiple POVs in the first trilogy. Darrow has this mindset and, and portrays Victra as just this kind of agreeable, uh, very loyal, uh, character, uh, within his army and once you are able to actually view Victra from the, the standpoint of Ephraim or the standpoint of Lyria, suddenly you realize exactly how aggressive uh, and what a tiger that she really is and, and how protective she is of her, of her children and stuff. So it's like, 
I don't think motherhood brought that on. I, I think it's a perspective issue. Uh, that's my opinion. Yeah, okay. I, get, I get this too. I, I have this quote. I thought about this question because it was a good question because it made me think about my second favorite character in the entire series. And should I hold this regard? Should I should I be like, I don't know. It made me question it, PJ. And I like that. I like that I had to think about Victra. Um, and so I was like searching around in the books and I thought, Oh man, I, I I was pulled to the quote in uh, Golden Sun, and it's one of the first scene that they uh, one of the first scenes you really get a lot of interaction with her. So it's like with it's in chapter six of Golden Sun, I believe. If I'm off the top of my head, she says, "I'm the Jens Jul- I am the Jens Julii. My family trades in commerce enough to buy continents. Who can afford to purchase my honor? If one day I become your enemy, I will tell you, and I will tell you why." It's like she tells you right who she is right from the get go. Like she is like straight up baller. Um, and she's yeah. ready. And so I, I don't, I think Jeremy's answer is my answer as well. It's just more or less that we're getting a different, uh, vantage point of a character that is very severe, very cold, but at the same time, one character, uh, it seems like can bring this other side of her out and it's Darrow. And she refers to Darrow as her best friend. I know several can too, but she's also kind of funny and cold and severe to several as well at times. But I think Darrow, there's just like the softness and a rapport for each other. And that's just how he treated her, like, you know, reintroducing yourself. Like, hey, what's what's reintroducing and and the, the gift of Petrichor, all these little things and these little mementos and these nods that they have this really interesting relationship. And so we had a vantage point of Darrow and Victra being a very special one. And then now we're outside of that. And then now you see that she is like, I'm you can't buy me. You can't do anything about me. I am. I'm a force to be reckoned with. And uh, I'm, I'll come for you if you want me to. And I'll, if I'm going to be your enemy, I'll, I'll straight up tell you. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. Period. Yeah. I don't really have anything I can like add on that just to, <laughs> except to say that I, I totally agree. I think the unreliable narrator is the culprit here. Right. And, and Darrow that uh, in the first trilogy, you know, Victra is viewed through rose colored lenses. You know, I think that we see she's not a politician, right? She is not, uh, she doesn't no care. Way. She doesn't give a fuck what you think about her. And maybe she cares what Darrow thinks about her, but also we don't really know. Cause like nobody else is talking <laughs> about like, you know, like take any scene between Darrow and Victra from somebody else's POV. And they might be going like, the fuck is wrong with these people? <laughs> like, what is the deal with those two? You know? And, and I think that's so evident here through, uh, Ephraim and Lyria's POV. And, but doesn't, and James, the fact that I like her a lot, she's she's awesome. <laughs> Fantastic. She's such a good character. Yeah. I have, PJ, do you have thoughts on Victra, the inner voice? I mean, all of, all of the above have kind of swayed me into really, really... I think you guys I, nailed it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you guys did. You, exactly. Like, I wrote this question because I wasn't sure what I felt about it. And that that completely, like, collapsed my thought on victra into basically in line with all of your guys so cool wait yeah. pj you didn't answer your own question now this oh P- it's a first oh <laughs> victra first is a mom <laughs> ayo <laughs> oh, i'm sorry oh, come again <laughs> This, this is my PJ, you're fired moment of the podcast. <laughs> is that a moment in every single podcast? Oh, there's more At than least one once or twice. twice. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm so gonna, good. Yeah, I'm going to go um, drop a line in uh, No PJs Allowed real quick. Hold on. Okay. 
<laughs> oh, my, oh my god, guys, can you believe what PJ just said on the podcast? <laughs> hey guys, we're recording right now. PJ's the dumbass thing over here. <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god. It's gonna be really fun when you get to reckon with all of that. We yeah. we've we've also made jokes collectively among um among the folks, and I don't think this is like an anti-spoiler or anything like that. Like, I'm not preluding this. But there have been a number of people who've been like, how the hell is PJ Nostradamus about some of these yeah, moments I've and events? Yeah, and they're yeah. like, PJ is so fucking wrong. Like, <laughs> what is that prediction? <laughs> so there, there have been a number of people we, we actually put forward in our last episode of Iron and Gold that we wanted people to submit questions that they had for PJ about the forthcoming chapters and sections of the book. So if you guys have ideas and even predictions going forward or anyone else that's listening to this, of course, send them in uh, because I think it's interesting to kind of pose those. But we we kind of want to we want to theorize. And PJ's got that. a 50 50 track record. So oh, that's, that's good. I think that's, that's pretty really decent. Good. Like, I think what's going to be the most fun is my predictions for the sixth book that hasn't been written yeah that no one has any idea yeah. so that's he's been writing his own for. predictions so he's been asking his own questions and everything like that for two books now so Dang, this is legit yeah, I love just it. one you you wrote you wrote all of uh it was a deadpool in the second in <laughs> oh, i wrote so i wrote was, morning i yeah. wrote the morning star deadpool that's true yeah so, so right. should we right. lightning round through these uh let's see they're all good i don't know my next question does apple does apollonius do enough during this book to deserve his release. Okay, Mathar, you're first up on this. I, I'm deferring. I'm starting to defer my uh, my first go. <laughs> I'm actually really interested in your answer. That's why I need to clarify. So you're saying that, like, in the eyes of the character, should they say like, "Yeah, that was worth it," or uh, as a reader? I, I guess. I guess either. I guess it, it's it's open enough. But Darrow makes the call that. He has done enough in the in this mission to deserve his uh, his freedom. I guess. I think he does serve his purpose quite well. Yes. Um. I I don't know if I can be like super introspective about it, but I think like without that, as as risky a move as that was, that's such a Darrow move, right? To ask everyone to have faith in a character like this. Like, trust me. Yeah. Trust me. Yeah. For sure. When really, like, he has no shit. <laughs> it's obvious yeah. by the end of the book there was no fucking also clue. didn't need him right but what i'm saying yeah. is like did he need him because would everybody have thought like oh we're doing this without that like like did darrow actually know like you know what we don't really need apple but like everybody thinks he's the linchpin to this this move that we're making this gambit like is there an argument to be made and I, again i'm just postulating i'm not saying i had this theory before i came on the show but i'm just thinking out loud like is it possible that like had they not had also does he not say, I mean, would they have all died on the platform had a Apollonius and his men not landed, right? So, like, there's plenty to be said about, like, okay, for the larger picture, none of it mattered, right? Like, the bigger picture mm -hmm. of this book, the fact that the Ash Lord is lying there wasting away, like, and, <laughs> you know, Atalante is actually at the helm of his forces, none of it mattered. But in the context of Correct. getting there yeah. to the Ash Lord's sanctum, the inner sanctum, had not Apple been a part of that equation regardless of what he did on the battlefield there may have not been enough faith in the like the win they may have died before they even reached it it's possible i don't know so just a real quick side tangent you said the word gambit and our podcast listeners who have been listening since the beginning will know that i have abused that word in the podcast <laughs> and have been banned 
from saying it. And so, as such, I need to mark that I did not say that word, and I have not said what, it what's the, since Golden Sun yeah, Episode 7. Still. Anyway. It is it is a very difficult question, though, where it's like, did Darrow make the right call because he had to figure out about the Ash Lord, or was it completely the wrong call because he should have maybe submitted to the Senate and instead never have gone this way, and as such might have discovered this over time, that it was someone else leading? Does it matter who's leading the army? Really? Like... There's there's that question like, sure, an assassination is great, but why would you send your greatest general to lead an assassination like what if, if we want to talk no, about mistakes no general that Darrow that. made? I don't think this was among the most <laughs> grievous. <laughs> is, yeah, that's true. That's true. Although it is a book worth of mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 all tantamount to like, I, I think, again, his entire perspective of himself and what in his destiny i guess so to speak like what his overall yeah. drive is so i think it's kind of like to kind of echo what you guys are saying it's kind of sad that like had darrow known that he had already been poisoned essentially once darrow kind of splits um you know and leaves his trial and on all that situation like that could have been the end of his entire pov for the book like the rest of it would have been unnecessary um, and that, that kind of speaks to iron gold as a whole. And that's something we can cover like right at the end of the podcast. Cause I, I want to know, cause it's my favorite book and I want to know why everybody doesn't love it as much as I do. Anyway, I, I that truly aside, don't understand that. Yeah. Yeah. That aside, speaking strictly of Apple, cause that is the question. I 100% believe Apple did everything he needed to do to deserve his release. That's simply upholding his guarantee to darrow darrow came to him with a proposition gave his word on it and apple fulfilled that like to a t even saving his life in that moment as you pointed out cross and darrow actually comes back in his villainous state and double crosses him by, <laughs> by taking darrow. the carthiae and sowed like hostages it's like Darrow actually is the fucking one, reaper man. Yeah, he's the one who didn't fulfill Don't his end of the bargain. The Apollonius reaper. did. So, the oyster cold status. If that's the context <laughs> yeah. of the question, I agree with Jeremy. You're right? Welcome. I maybe misread the question just a little bit, but like, did he, like, did he earn his release as a character? Truly, he did. In fact, he went a step further. He embraced yes. Darrow, and he was relishing. And like, and maybe it wasn't Darrow. Maybe he it was committed the reaper, to the right? lie. Yeah. He, <laughs> yeah. Right. Maybe it was the reaper, but like, he was having a good time he was like this is great i see mm-hmm. now why people follow you right like the, you're great to mm-hmm. fight with this is excellent i have long like yeah. you know uh dreamed of being back on the battlefield and there's no worthier uh you know someone to fight by my side than you maybe he was playing that up a little bit but i mean he leaned hard into it so yeah uh yeah i got something uh i, yeah. I made little notes for myself on most of these questions but didn't make one on this one uh, I mean, it's just I'm like completely gonna go around the question. Uh, man, I don't like Apple. <laughs> I don't care. He does not make me care about him at all. Like I was just like, so it's like weird. Like I don't even know how to answer the question because it's like it's especially weird because you love Tactus. Yeah, and- I know. Um, but yeah, I love Tactus. Like, but I don't know. Like, I do think that's fun. Like this fun that well something that Mathar said was fun was like that you know he's like yeah like this is great dudes like let's storm the castle like that vibe towards the kind of the end of the book he is kind of that that, yeah it's kind of nuts but i don't know man i it's like hard to like okay so it's one of those things that's like 
uh, everyone's talking about the record everyone's talking about the tv show everyone's talking about the thing and you're like Mm-hmm. Uh, I, want, I I don't know what it is, but some of us have that nature. I know like we're all music nerds, so we just want to be too cool for school about it sometimes. I feel this way. Yeah, but I was just like, I don't know. Everyone flipped about it out about Apple. And I'm like, that was the most boring part of this book to me. Like, I was just like, I <laughs> hot take. I, I'm not trying to be hot take. I don't and I don't think anyone cares yeah. enough to think that's a hot take. I just I just haven't said it yet. because We haven't talked about Iron Gold. So I don't know. I guess he did or I guess he didn't. I, it doesn't really matter to me. Question. It doesn't really matter to just, me. Just to answer just to answer the hot take a little bit, the reason that I like Apple is that he's just he's just a classical perspective on the whole thing. He gets to be like, I am the classical live wire to the conversation yeah. where it's like, haha, I'm gonna take you back into the the olden times and what a bunch of people were debating over and I'm gonna bring it into live conversation. And I think that's what makes it so interesting because Pierce has said, This is my perspective. Like this is if I were a character, this is probably me. I've heard him say Say, in a number of interviews. I've heard him say that, to echo that, I've heard him say that yeah. it's his favorite character to write for currently and also the one yeah. that he gets the, he gets almost no notes on from his editor. So it's like he, it just goes, it flows. It's just classical. Yeah. Like he's literally just writing as though it's a classical person living in this age. And so it makes it very interesting and different because it's just, it's a, he's a sociopath. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. Again, I, I like Jeremy and uh, Mathar's answers and I'll just say, cool, guys. There goes. There's a good, those are good <laughs> answers. <laughs> I don't know what becomes of Apple in uh, book five, uh, but I am, I'm just looking forward to like the scene. I just kind of anticipating the scene where like Apple's sitting around feeling a little bummed out, you know, about his whole situation. And then like, would Apple ever like be his little out? minion Apple comes up meditating. and it's like, you know, <laughs> gosh, it disturbs me to see you, Apple looking so down in the dumps, you know, and then you have this whole like, and no, no one's quick as Apple, no one's quick as Apple. He's literally Gaston, come on, like, yes, he is Gaston. Oh my gosh. Come on, that's the most perfect. The live action version of this show, we need that moment. Fuck. That that's the best. I wasn't thing anticipating said this to so be the far. musical number, <laughs> but yep. there's your is. moment of sound that's, design. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, it's that's actually perfect. It, it's so interesting because I could never imagine Apple depressed, but when you when you paint him as Gaston, I can imagine him being just a little bit dejected <laughs> yeah. enough for someone to be like, "Oh, you're really sad." Well, there's no one left to strangle. That's why he's sad. He's just like, yeah. "I'm looking for someone right, to like right. kill with my butt cheeks," and who's, there's no one around really here. Like, <laughs> who's Gaston's? Who's Gaston's sidekick? Who's that little dude? Le Le Fou. Fou. Le Fou. Le Fou. Le Fou. Yeah. I, who's that guy in Red Rising? I want to know so bad. <laughs> oh my goodness. This is great. I'm having a great time. I gotta, I gotta figure that out. I don't know. Thars- I guess Tharsis. I guess that's the only. Or Tharsis the warden. is the only answer. Oh, oh, warden. Oh, there God. it is. It is the warden. The warden is kind of the poor warden. That's what was happening before we got there. All yeah. right. <laughs> no one. Oh my gosh. I'm always every time I read anything with Apple, I'm gonna like overture go and just like and just uh, cue the music yep. you know you waltzing through every oh scene. my gosh that's for so all good. the apple stands out there there you go there you go yeah. <laughs> add mm-hmm. one more thing to the head cannon. oh my gosh it's so good all right yeah. <laughs> i feel like we're all laughing about this extraneously uh so i know we're, we're close on time and everything like that so the final question that i want to ask is just about ephraim we talked about him at the beginning i just want to talk like what are some favorite moments about ephraim what do you what do you think about ephraim and trig uh, what do you think about Ephraim's perspective? What does that add? We've talked about a number of different perspectives like Blade Runner. 
what what do you get out of that perspective for you i yeah i just i'm I'm formulating sorry i forgot that i go first and i was deferring and all of a sudden i started talking like oh crap i didn't defer um so anyway i think that i just no i'm deferring come on go go jeremy because i know you guys you guys are more (laughs) ephraim guys i like ephraim a lot it's second favorite pov but i want to hear uh people that read the book more recently Ross basically threw the entire last three questions out the window and asked something that was kind of a bastardized amalgamation of several of the questions. (laughs) Which is great. (laughs) But it's like it. So try to make it work for the last minute. Um, Okay, this is a beautiful question. So I think his inability to let go of Trig is probably the thing that endears me most to him. The minute he forgets the minute that trig doesn't matter to him like and i mean not in the way where you like throw a bottle at the wall and say like you know uh fuck trig what did he know right like you know he he was a fool a young fool who went to you know fight for the rising and what did it get him you know what i mean that's just it's anger and grief that he has not processed mm-hmm. the minute that that's gone you know then he ceases to be a redeemable character in my eyes but mm-hmm. that in in a weird way i think trig is I, maybe the other way around i guess like lyria is like a proxy for trig in some way and i think that there starts to become mm-hmm. by the end of it right like a sense of and maybe to a lesser extent volga but humanity right like trig is the only person that was good in his eyes the only the only good in the world was was you know snuffed out way before his time and everyone else sucks right and now he is having those those cracks in that veneer are vanishing and he's beginning to realize that he is endeared to people right and that he is not completely lost i think he is realizing that as we are hoping that it's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not very eloquently stated, but man, I love Ephraim. And and I really love his story. And and I, I'm so heartbroken for him. I have so much empathy for everything that he's gone through. And and can I just say, did not expect the coldness from Holiday that we got like in their moments mm. together, right? Yeah. She also has not processed her grief. And although it seemed like it early on that she had a healthy grasp, on losing you know her brother it's clear by the end like she has just put up a wall it is there and that is how she's dealing with it so like their dichotomy actually was really fascinating to me um i'm gonna turn it over to the rest because i'm sure i'll jump back in (laughs) later but yeah um i think it is a positive overall yeah just the tie-in on holiday real quick or harmony not holiday uh Holiday, holiday, not, not harmony. harmony. I was like, Jesus. "Wow, where are we going?" Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, no, just just the tie in there. I think it's really interesting because she also understands Trig's or not Trig Ephraim's grief and understands that fundamentally in the way that she talks about it in the very last chapter with Lyria, where they're addressing that kind of moment between the two of them, and it's like he Ephraim lived out a very brutal moment where he was being faced down and everyone else in his squad mm-hmm. died, and it's this very real like dudes live through intense grief and he is death would be better for him than living from his own perspective Mm -hmm. and that's just that's a brutal realization from a second party to talk about someone else that way oh my god Mm. it's you know what though his narcissism is like so strong that he can't even do it right like you know otherwise George Clooney from Ocean's Eleven, Twelve, and Thirteen, yeah. like yeah. Yeah, entirely. Yeah, yeah. He's also so, yeah. very narcissistic, and that's 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 his like flaw. But I, oh man, so true. And is, that that is scene that narcissism a defense mechanism though. Um, hard to say. Hard to say for that reason. 
Possibly. I don't know. I could see him before all of this still thinking he's the shit, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> he doesn't yeah. think he's better than a lot of people. Maybe right. it's not that the maybe it's not the type of narcissism that you loathe the most. It's just that casual narcissism. Somebody who is like a little overconfident <laughs> because exists. they were top of their class and mm-hmm. nobody ever like, you know, uh called them out, whatever. But um man, just saying that like Lyria and Holiday together were such an interesting dichotomy and the fact that like Lyria doesn't even know if Trig is real, right? Doesn't know if the myth, uh, mm-hmm. if that's part of the mm-hmm. mythos that like Philippe cast or if that is legitimate, you know? And that was the part she endeared herself the most to. His grief is how she identified with him. Like, oh, he's been through what I've been through. Mm-hmm. And so totally. now she's questioning all that. And then the two of them in that room together were like, Holiday knows it's real and is like completely like Stonewall. And Lyria is still emotional thinking this guy's just a, like full of shit. Oh, I love that moment so much. I love this book. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Uh, Jeremy, you were going to chime in on that. Yeah. I'm so glad Mathar went first because we track so hard on this book and especially Ephraim's POV. And I think Mathar nailed it. I don't think it needs to be gone into much further from that perspective, but I'll just kind of give this kind of philosophical view I see of Trig. And it that's just that like Trig to Ephraim is like this necessity, right? Because, you know, had he given him up and, and quote unquote, like gotten over his, his husband's loss or his fiance's loss, uh, that resentment for the rising that's necessary for the story would not have existed. And the fact that he, he hasn't gotten over it and the, the tragedy of that actually grounds his humanity because this is a this is a suicidal man this is a man that's given up on everything and trig is that humanity and the only thing that actually makes him a good actor uh in his dealings with the children and and kind of going forward in the story so so for that I, i think that that kind of push and pull of of the trig story is just absolutely essentialism from like a philosophical standpoint fantastic love it so building building off that a little bit at the same time, if Trig wasn't the one to kidnap the kids, somebody else would have. And without that person being so closely tied to what one of the, one of the lieutenants of Darrow, I don't think they would have found either of the kids so quickly. So it, it it's so intertwined that that Ephraim is the one that does this heist and is so involved on both sides of this equation that that makes it kind of possible to th- at least partially thwart the uh the attempt to kidnap the kids um that that just makes the the problem so much deeper I, th- I feel like at least well said without a doubt <laughs> philip I- i'm good i like these answers i don't want to ruin them cool all right uh final comments on the book itself and, and things like that we've talked about the fact that this is actually generally generally speaking this is considered one of the bottom two books <sighs> in the entire Rousty. five book series which i think is a travesty yes. <laughs> it's an absolute it's ridiculous. So final thoughts on the book and why you rank it so highly or where you rank it and why. Um, it's my fourth favorite book currently, but I can't say that. You see, you're no, one no, of but, those. But I, I, wanna, I do want to say this. I, I want to say this because 
Yeah. I've we've we've been doing Hail Reaper for under a year. And so we've spent mm-hmm. all of our time in the first trilogy. And I don't have I don't have like a lot of things have changed for me over the process of doing a podcast because you think about them so differently. And you're you're it's like, you know, cross, I know I know you and I share this. Like you read these books with a different experience and now you're reading these books in the process mm-hmm. of a podcast. Things change, things maneuver. Uh, things become more fluid or things become more disjointed, whatever that is. And again, so I know I know we disagree on this point. Tactus, I didn't think anything about Tactus in, in my first couple of reads. I thought more about Daryl in that moment. But the more I've thought about it, I've added Tactus to this pantheon of characters that I love and care about. And I know you have your 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 sentimental. It's so bizarre because I'm the you're, opposite. I love Tactus in the first read and I, I disliked him intensely yeah, on the and reread. You're, but you're but sentimental yeah. for Roke and I'm not, right? Yeah, yep. and so... And that's, it's like not more than fine. It's awesome that we have like a, a difference in mm-hmm. opinion on these things and we can add our collective voices to the Red Rising universe and fandom and go, I love this person or I love that person. I love Trig. Or I love Holiday. I love whoever. And so I, it's fourth right now. I don't know if that's going to stay. That's not going to stay the same. I, I can guarantee that. I'm not going to have it fourth forever. Like it just won't because it's this sliding doors of these books kind of taking shape. I didn't like, I loved Golden Sun my first time through. I don't know where it stands now. I, I honestly, Mathar convinced me Morningstar is a better book. I believe, I, I agree with Mathar now and, and I'm, I'm, I'm in that camp. And it was the process of talking through on a podcast or on these phone calls that we have so many times that I came into the podcast as Golden Sun being my favorite. It's no longer my favorite. Morningstar has surpassed that. And again, it's my emotional connection to these books that feel so much. And I haven't had an emotional relationship with Iron Gold in recent vintage. So how can I say it's fourth when I don't even know? Uh, but if I'm gonna, if, sure. um, if I can speak to that, you know, briefly, it'd be Morning Star, it would be, uh, it'd be Dark Age or Golden Sun, pick your poison, and it would be Iron, it'd be uh, Iron Gold there and Red Rising last. But I, it could change, and it probably, and it, I'm expecting it to change once we start talking as a podcast about Iron Gold. Okay, mm-hmm. totally fair, Jeremy. What do you think? I think this book is magnificent. I, this is my favorite <laughs> of the series thus far. Um, it, it's interesting. On my first read, it, it was also my favorite, but I would have answered differently. I, I would have said, much like my argument for A New Hope being my favorite Star Wars film, where I don't necessarily think it's the best, yet it's my favorite. Mm. That that actually would have been my argument for Iron Gold, but uh, upon reread... I actually don't know that that's even my argument anymore. I think I've I've found so much richness in Pierce's writing through this book. I, I think, I don't know, like, this is a question I have, but I, I would posit the question. It's like, what is everyone's hang up? Is it that, <laughs> that Darrow's POV? Cross, you should answer this. Yeah, no, Cross might be the best one to do it, right? Because you have this very Darrow-centric first trilogy. And then not only do you jump immediately to multiple POVs, but the Darrow POV itself is greatly diminished. Like I could sum it up super quick, right? It's like Darrow gets convicted of war crimes. Darrow gets under house arrest. Darrow escapes, goes to Venus. Or I'm sorry. Darrow uh, murders go, a person. Yeah, You're skipping yes, a point yes, there. Darrow murders people skip somebody, over as well when they think about this goes book. Goes to deep grave, yeah. then jumps over to Venus and finds a dead guy. End of story, right? It's manslaughter fest. <laughs> And it's like manslaughter, <laughs> manslaughter at best. You, you don't get to walk away with that. Um, but it's oh like God. 
I don't know that I would go into a whole lot more exposition on Darrow's POV. I obviously I would. I, I'm I'm being cheeky right now, but like comparatively to the other POVs, where it take me an hour a piece to really explain the plot points of all of them, I, I don't think you get that with Darrow. And I think I wonder if it's just that like love loss between the two books that just is is a sharp edge and just hits people too hard. I, maybe that's the thing. I don't know. I, I'm totally with you on that. I think that's why this book is is actually generally put right there with the original Red Rising book, which I think is a, a very good book. But this book is generally rated just above that. It's typically, as as Philip even said, it's the thir- the second best book or the second worst book in the series, which is to say that it's the fourth best book. Uh, but also, it's, it's a grade A, though, just, by the way. They're all, for me, they're all A's. Right, yeah. right. That's that's an important clarification. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I, do, I do have a question. What's... What's lower than it? Just Red Rising, just the original Red Rising. Right? It's his consensus. This isn't like you know. It's just the idea. Yeah. It's the consensus according to the Red These Rising. These are opinions. These are facts. No, it's a consent. <laughs> yeah, it's a consensus according <laughs> to the internet. True, it's an internet consensus that yeah. we'll take that for what it's worth. The the original book is generally considered to be the worst book, but it's still like a B. Man, you know, it's like of the four, it's number two for me. Red Rising, uh, hey, or Golden Sun? You're kidding? No, Golden yum. Sun's one. Oh, okay. You're talking about the worst book. We're talking about the worst book. Oh, I I thought you yeah. said most people I, say I'm saying I'm saying Red Rising is number two, like mm. second best. Is the second best? Yeah, it's your second this favorite book. This is an okay take. It just do you know what? We're, we're, we're gonna I'm lean into this, myself dude. at this point. Lean into this. Yeah, it's I like your it. it's your thing, dude. <laughs> how, how do you PJ? How do you rank the books? Let's let's start there On and it, we'll, like, we'll back as all right. Golden Sun. Okay. Red Rising. Morningstar. Really? Iron Gold. Iron Gold is your least favorite? Of the four, yeah, I think so. And this makes PJ perfectly equipped to answer my question. <laughs> I wanna I wanna throw a thought in there later, but I, I need to get we need to get through these things first. Like the the question <laughs> yeah, that Jeremy right. has. Jeremy, the question again is why do people rank this book so low? Yeah. And PJ needs to answer the question of why does this book not rank as highly? I want to answer real quickly based on your perspective, given that there is a shift from Darrow's perspective and that shift from Darrow's perspective. A lot of people didn't enjoy initially, and I think that leads them in the first read to feel very jarred from the perspective and like dislodged from the world because they're expecting this uniform point of view, even if it's lying to you, which is ridiculous from a reader's perspective. But they're just they're just in it. They're in it to ride and to be given a multi a variable perspective, not only on the world, but on the character that they love is tough to deal with. And I think that's a thing that people have to individually. It's, okay. With. So real quick, I'll, I'll add this thought because it's really short. It's inverting expectations and people don't like that. Yep. People do not. Right. I, I, I don't want know. to go to my couch and sit there and watch the show at the same time. And then, and if it's not that way, you know, like I, I get frazzled. And so it, it changes, it changes expectations. And that's why, it doesn't carry through. And that's why at the time when I read Iron Gold and went on the Reddit, because that was my only, that was at the time that was the only access point to the greater Red Rising mm-hmm. community, really. Uh, people that, people were saying that. That's what they were saying. It's like, this is flipping my expectations. They weren't saying it that way. And I'm not calling any individuals out, but they didn't like that. They didn't like that things shifted from their, what they were expecting. It, it's so interesting because I think those are the same people that believe that Walter White was the hero in Breaking oh, <laughs> You know, like it's a, it's a similar wow. problem. 
where you're, you're viewing it through a uniform lens and you're not able to discern the fact from what changed from the origin point of something that was honest and heroic to something that became something that was let's, negative. And, let's get PJ's take, though, because I'm, I'm really curious. I'm genuinely curious. I, I think it's mostly because of pacing. Because, Interesting. Because everything just... The pace at which you consume the story is so much... Not necessarily slower or faster, but different and less linear. And it it it, it makes understanding the the actual plot lines a lot more muddy. And that's coming from somebody who's spending a week at a time analyzing five chapters at a time. And I'm rereading them and rereading them mm. a couple times, three That's times, hard. kind of on average. So then I'm I'm like looking at it like, all right, what happened this week to next week? And sometimes almost nothing happens between like uh, over the course of a full episode, almost nothing happens to a single character. So like I, I understand like, this is just the way that I consume this book is completely different than what most people do. And these, this entire series in general, like I, I feel like it's kind of a unique um, way that I'm consuming this and it's not necessarily well adjusted or well, uh, well suited for this book. You know, What's bizarre is that I came out with your same opinion that it was my least favorite book in the series the first time that I read it, and then subsequent rereads, it became better and better and better, which okay. is what's very interesting, but similar, because first reread, I was like, this isn't as good as Morningstar, and then it was like, oh, yeah, this is because of the reasons that Jeremy already cited for the most part. I just hadn't come to realize it. Let's go, Matthew. Fully. I want to hear yours, too. Yeah, just to yeah. add on the end of PJ's comments, I think you, you know, it, it I'd be curious to find out, but I... I I wouldn't be surprised if there are a lot more people than you think that experienced the book the way that you did. Because if you think about Mm -hmm. how busy people's lives are and how many books we try to read at once, I mean, a lot of people who do read are always like interested. I want to read that. I want to read that. I want to read that. And there's a lot going on. I myself am splitting my time Mm -hmm. between like a huge stack of Marvel comics (laughs) and getting ready for everything that's coming out (laughs) um, and, and this. And so it's like, it is disjointed sometimes. And I think the way that the book is written right? It lends itself better to like a sit down and read this through, right? And really digest the story. Yeah. And so there's probably a lot of people that maybe had a similar opinion given the nature of the, the way it's put together. So I, that wouldn't surprise me. Um, I just loved this book so much. I couldn't stop talking about it mm-hmm. every time I'd get to like a new major plot point in the story, texting Philip and Jeremy. And I found it. Text me. It, Dan. I will. <laughs> I will. Give us You'll your regret number. it. I um, <laughs> and uh, just just to cut in a little bit here to kind of uh, iron things out a little bit. Somebody said that it's still an A. Like that's that that's true for me right. as well. Mm-hmm. I can't remember who said that, but like this is still A grade material for me. It's just if I have to rank it, that's where it goes. Yeah. In, Sorry. In, in the context of the story itself, like I find all these books, I don't know if I would rank Red Rising as an A, um, but I think a strong B. Um, for me, it's uh, Iron Gold, Morning Star, Golden Sun, Red Rising. That's and I think once I finished 
Dark Age, that might change, right? Like, I think Dark Age might take the, the crown. We'll see. I don't know. But um, I did, they just keep getting better is kind of like the idea. Because when I read Morningstar, I was like, oh, I love this. Like, I struggled with Red Rising. I leaned into Golden Sun and was like, okay, cool. Yeah, I'm like really getting this world. It's interesting. And I'd ask Philip questions about like Hyperion and Lost City. I started formulating ideas about what's really going on, right? Like in the nitty gritty, how come, do we get to see that? Like, I'm just so curious about what's happening. Like, you know, in the capital on Luna, like I'm so curious about what's happening in these, these rim territories. Like, you know, do we see anywhere else? Like, and then Morningstar is just a beautiful, beautiful piece of literature that leads us into Iron Gold, which answered, it was the answer to everything I wanted out of the series, right? It was such a breath of fresh air. The departure, no love lost between me and Darrow. Not the biggest Darrow fan, pretty low on my list of characters. And so no love lost, like <laughs> departing from his POV was just like, and the fact that in the first chapters of the book, it's like, oh, we're back on the front lines. We're back on the front lines. We're back in a battle, back in a fight. And then immediately we're away from it. We're whisked away from the war front and we're plopped in the middle of the city and we're on the rim and we're getting all of that stuff that I wanted out of the story already. So that's a very personal, you know, very subjective kind of point of view. But man, I was so surprised and it did subvert my expectations and, and, pleasantly so so i don't know how i'd feel in a reread you know if i would be more endeared to the first trilogy and question maybe some of what i think about iron gold and look, take a closer look at maybe why some people don't love it but i had such a fucking blast on this read i could not put it down uh i'll speak to yeah Go i just on. want to speak to this a little bit for like just a difference you know it's not everyone i love everyone's opinions and i respect the hell out of them honestly uh Do i you? don't what's that <laughs> Except yeah. for if you're like, I said, do you? When, you? when you set it up like that, that means no, no you no, don't. I, I, was <laughs> I was about to give the caveat. I'm just kidding. If you're a big Apple fan, just get out. Just get out. No, um, so, uh, no, I mean, I'm, so that's what I was kind of the joke that I was setting up there. No, yeah. but uh, yeah. I think that it's just this like, so we, we have this person that works on the show with us uh, named Janelle. And Janelle does a lot of our coordination yep. and does a lot of our, our planning and helping us. And she and I really feel similar about the books at large and because it's emotional for us, you know, and that's just, that's just who I am. That's how I'm built. And Iron Gold, I said this earlier, is like the characters of Ephraim and Lysander specifically, you're spending half your time with these characters. They're dispassionate at times. They're clinical at times. They're not letting the reader in at times. They're, they're hiding from you. They're trying to, it feels like they're trying to dig underground and get away from the reader almost in a way. And so where you have uh, a character like Daryl, flaws and all, because I do agree with, uh, you know, Mathar at times and, and, and Jeremy as well. Jeremy has this like really cool way of kind of like turning off that, you know, just kind of viewing it very, uh, for the, don't forgive me that my words just very analytically, you know, just, yeah. it's just like, it is just, yeah. this is what's on the page and here we go. And, um, but I can't do that. And so Iron Gold is this experience where um, I'm thrusting this experience where I have to spend time with characters that are, are not, they, they feel like they're not trying to fool me, but they're definitely trying to, um, they're just not letting me all the way in. And Darrow, for as ridiculous as he acts uh, at times with like Docks of Ganymede or Tarim's and Iron Gold, He's, he's allowing his emotions to be very on the cuff. And so that's, again, 
and uh, and I, we just don't get as much of that in the second trilogy. So it's like an endearment more than anything else. Uh, and that's why I think also to speak to like people like Janelle and I, uh, why people also don't love the story of Iron Gold because they want to uh, connect. And it's not about connection anymore. It's about the world. It's about growing. It's about seeing different folds of what the society is. So it's, it's, it, presents this, it presents something different, but equally as cool, uh, just just different. I love that. And I think that's actually like a really good point to almost end the podcast on. But it's unfair to not give Jeremy his time to talk about why he loves Iron Gold. Yeah, let's do it. Did we already do that? I don't think we quite hit it. We didn't we didn't let you give a full explanation. I think the last couple hours have been all about why I love Iron Gold. <laughs> well, well, nice. but it's, but like why you rank it over the other books. Yeah, I, it's up to you. No, no, I can hit that for a second. I think that it, it's on two fronts, right? I talked about my initial read having this perception that it's my favorite. And that's like we talked about. That's gaining that uh, black market, the syndicate, the gritty underworld of Lost City, uh, all of mm-hmm. these amazing elements. And and not just to paint that picture, right? I, I love the rim. I actually highly appreciate Lysander's POV and it is why I'm I'm not on like that Lysander hater wagon, um, <laughs> which exists. which oh exists. PJ is unaware it of is this. Strong it's by so, the way. It's so it's it, it, it's absurd. And yeah. it's like you you see this exemplification of what Gold Society was supposed to be, and and I've it, and even though I disagree with that, I still respect the hell out of what they've built out there on the outer rim. And I like it as a spectacle. And then you kind of depart from just that, like, like I said, I, I kind of comped it to star Wars. Right. So it's like, apart from just that world that Pierce mm-hmm. has given me, um, because I'm huge into world building. I, I freaking love world building. Yeah. And, but even when you divorce yourself from that, you see Pierce take this giant leap forward in his ability to write. Uh, suddenly you notice like, man, he can handle multiple POVs and with great precision. And I think like, again, I can look at, at dark age and I, I actually think it's a brilliant book. It's very well written, but I think a lot of the same qualities, uh, also exist in iron gold. So I think it's, a, I think it's like a writing Marvel as well as just Pierce, just giving me the world like Mathar says it's like the world I always wanted to see in the, in, in here I knew it was there right you would get these underpinnings but it's like finally I get to experience it mm-hmm. Th- this series there's there's kind of a refrain that goes around I think in, in kind of low murmurs which is that this series becomes Iron Gold or not Iron Gold Game of Thrones in space mm. and this is the book in which that happens really to some degree you, you get those multiple POVs you get to start you start to came some of those perspectives but i think i think you nailed it. i was thinking about this too i was like for what pj said about how there's a crawl not a run to uh, i'm, I'm mm-hmm. sorry i'm making words up for you now pj but like you know the, <laughs> the idea of that you know within uh you know how you had to read this book in a fragmented kind of way oh my gosh if if like freaking cross ever makes you read song of ice and fire you're gonna blow your brains out because that, that, that is like you could read yeah that wouldn't read, work it wouldn't work like, i wouldn't do it um, you could read for like a month and nothing would happen <laughs> yeah, i will, so I will like, contest that but right. anyway if, if, if <laughs> uh, those books are slow oh, man yeah i heck. mean it, it is a beautiful example of like just 
the fact that like we suspect through the first trilogy that Daryl's perspective is a bit flawed, right? Like that he's unreliable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, oh boy, mm-hmm. it's evident here, right? Because then you're seeing that not everything is as it seems from everyone's perspective. And that's what a great time to do that when you've already wrapped up. You didn't need the second trilogy. And yet here we are. And it's like, golf clap, golf clap. <laughs> nice. Yes. Yeah, thought it out. Exactly. Any any other thoughts? Any final concluding thoughts yes, before we I wrap have this one. up? Um, you have a question on here yeah. that we didn't get to, but I would like to lightning yeah. round it, and it is, <laughs> if you could see any other story like Ephraim's in the universe, what would you choose? Hot Duke of Hand. Like the like the coming mm. up of the Duke of Hand. Hands? Would be your Duke POV hands. choice. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but like from way earlier. Yep. Not like in this story, but like yep. from the world way earlier. A like pre-rising pink. Exactly. Like yeah. from being yeah. someone's pink, you know, coming up in the their their inner circle. I forget what they what they call their like place where all the pinks come from. The um, garden. The garden, right. Yeah, coming the garden. from the garden to rising yep. up and becoming, you know, a high ranking member of a criminal criminal syndicate is like that'd be such a dope story. That's a great, great call. Philip, thoughts? Jeremy? Uh, wanna, you, did you point at me or go? You. Okay. Yeah, I, mean, I think they, I think the the only real, I mean, not the only answer, but the best answer is something to do with the syndicate. I actually didn't see this question on the outline. Sorry. Um, but uh, it's, it's big. Okay, cool. It's tough. But, but I, uh, yeah, I would totally agree. It's, it's not, it doesn't need to be Duke of Hands for me, but it just needs to be something that's swirling in that arena. Uh, because that is something that I, mean, I would I would gobble that up though. I would, if to Mathar's point, if there was a, a Duke of Hands or the other Dukes, uh, actually, because it's there's you know oh, I can't say that. just a whole um, mini series uh, on yeah. like the Syndicate. Oh, I'm there. Yeah. I'm there. <laughs> yeah, take my money. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, but uh, other Dukes too, because there's an inference that if it's the Duke of Hands, there's these other dukes that happen and I, I they they do, do they? reference I, I was like gold, that's why so like, i can't yeah, say that and i was yeah, like yeah. crap they, we know that there are four dukes technically from iron gold the duke but, of earl yeah. the duke of sandwich duke of butts so, <laughs> duke, duke of booty um so uh no <laughs> fuck yeah um no i would i would like to see a, a, yeah. a melding of the dukes i guess that would be cool yeah That'd be great. That'd be great. Jeremy. Now, the, the obvious answer is the syndicate. Uh, and that's where mm-hmm. the the reality of my answer goes. However, I, I do want to give a little bit of an, an uh, adjacent answer to this. And that's because uh, I am obsessed with John Merriwater. And, oh, yeah. And that whole line. And they do mention it here, right? We're, we're, we're yeah, brought in the whole thing. Yep. The yep. USS Davy Crockett. The whole assault on, on Luna from Earth. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I wish to see that. I know, I know I'm not actually answering the question here, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> you tell yourself it's fine. <laughs> yeah, the rules of words and whiskey, I'm making them up as I go. And it's totally cool that I do this. So Those are our rules as well. So. <laughs> but yeah, that's right. The, the rule is there's no rules. So I want to see more exposition on, on John Merriwater. I want to see that storyline. And it is first mentioned here. So that's why I get to uh, root my answer in that. Okay. All right. PJ. Lauren. I want to see the upcoming of Lorne. Nice. Good answer. Because I think we'd be disillusioned quite a bit between what he's idealized as and what he actually became. Good like what, what he was answer. before before he was what he Holy became. Holy shit. That's great. So that's totally mine. Like you you grab that from my 
my soul. Uh, <laughs> but my my secondary my secondary option would actually be I really appreciate Diomedes' perspective in the ten years, in the decade, and what he's doing, kind of living in this rim society that has become the core gold as far as it goes, sort of the Republic of Gold, and what he has to enforce and what he doesn't, and what that looks like. Because we we obviously see through Bellafron that there are people who disagree with the way that the rim is running and what happens out there. And I think that would paint the gold culture in a very real way. And it would actually give a substantial measure as to whether or not the rim golds are better than the core golds, or if they're just a century or two delayed from their corruption. Dang. Nice. Perfect. That's it. With that, next week, we are going to be reading Dark Age. We're taking off from the prologue section into chapter or through chapter five. So it's until page 40. Uh, PJ gets to read like 53 words or 53 pages or something like that. So yeah. good luck. Finally. <laughs> You're almost there, dude. This is, this is exciting. I, we want to, I want to have a party for PJ when, when you finish yeah. the, when you finish like the, you know, what, what's available to us or are you guys going to do go back and do, I think I looked at your calendar and your website. You're going back to do the graphic novels too. We yeah. are. We're going to do the graphic novels post-Dark Sick. Age, and then we're going to do kind of a celebration at the end of the series that we haven't talked about yet, um, which we want to pull in some other people to do, but we would absolutely love to have you back, etc. So, yeah, that's that's kind of the game plan. Celebration at the end. It's not the end yeah, yet, yeah. but, you know, um, to, to kind of talk about the whole thing, because you guys had to all have, like, a muzzle on your mouth outside of Mather, who did not have to have a muzzle. <laughs> so. A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> I mean, kind of. Like it. Yeah, like 60 page. So, that's where we're going to leave you for the week. Yeah, uh, thank you, of course, to Tim and Andrew for helping us keep our show's lights on. Also, check out the links to our show notes, or links, ah, check out all of our links in our show notes. <laughs> you can find our schedule, Patreon, previous episodes, our websites, our socials, all in one convenient spot. Um, we also want to take a second today to thank our new patrons. Uh, patrons. We have uh, a, a few of them to note crossland yeah we've we've got new bartender ivana leveling up from a uh bar back taking it up to the next notch so she gets the access to all the other podcast content including the devil's cut of which i'm sure there's going to be one for this episode <laughs> wow. we talked about so much yeah. stuff uh there's no way that that doesn't happen and then we also have two new mixologists getting to hang out with us in the live podcast for from uh Snowbean and artificer so thank you guys so much for all of that support and we also create a new links page so that you can actually see all of our links conveniently on one page. Uh, it's words, word, wordsandwhiskey.show at or slash links. I think that's it. Yeah, yeah something like that. Links. It's it's inside of the show notes. You can't miss it. It's the only link now. So it's all of them <laughs> in true. one. It's, it's just one link. <laughs> it's so. everything. And it's a link tree that we built ourselves. Yep. And uh, thank you, of course, to all three of our guests. This was so oh much fun. Gosh. This was such a blast. This is this is the best. Thank you. Thanks. This the is pleasure. Fun. Is I appreciate ours. you guys having us on. Hail Reaper, guys. Ooh. I love awesome. this book. All right. <laughs> <laughs> put that, put that at the top. Put that at the very top. Before any hearing anything, you just go, I love this book. Just like that. And then I love this, I love yeah. this book. <laughs> I'm so horny for this book, guys. It's, I am okay. so horny. Duke of Booty. I love this book. And uh I don't know. Whatever. Yeah, cut those out. Or <laughs> there, there were a number of number of yeah. good call-outs. Sweet. Duke of Booty is going in the note, though, for tomorrow for publication. I love this book. All right. 